this episode, Justice League America, number 29, Justice League Europe, number 5, cover dated August 1989. Welcome to the 29th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irritable Shag, and I am your host, folks, but guess what? I brought along some friends. In fact, each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues at JLI. Now, we'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today is another international guest. Get it? An international guest on the Justice League International Podcast? We call that symmetry, folks. Learn it. Anyway, this gentleman, and for the first time, I think I'm actually using that word correctly regarding a guest. This gentleman, he is a French Canadian, and you may know him as one of the hosts of the First Strike Invasion podcast and the brand spanking new Zero Hour Strikes podcast. He's one of the few podcasters to have actually met my wife in real life and one of the even fewer podcasters that my wife actually likes. Folks, please help me welcome my good buddy, Boss. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Boss. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. I'm absolutely thrilled. And I started thinking about this. So we have you here to talk about Justice League America. You know, as some yeah. people call it the core book, the book that launched the thing. And then I started thinking, I've actually got a guy who speaks French as his native language, helping <laughs> me cover the America series. When I could have had you on for Justice League Europe, where they're actually in France speaking French. I guess I kind of blew that. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. Where I live, you know, I'm, I live in New Brunswick, Canada. I know. I've been there. Well, we have a lot of French influences from France and from Quebec and the rest of French Canada, but we're immensely influenced by the States and everything. So I I'm like a best of both worlds type thing. Well, then I guess you're sort of the nice bridge between those lands. So that works out well, sir. I, I appreciate you are You are the ambassador to the world. Certainly, my <laughs> wife thinks highly of you. My daughter seems to enjoy you on podcasts, which I don't understand even a little bit. And I'm happy to say you're one of the few folks that I've recorded shows with that I've sat down and broke bread with, sir. Oh, it was a great time. And can't wait to have you back over here. Or maybe yet I'll go down there. Florida. Come on over. Seems light. Yeah, seems we got nice. plenty of room. Yeah, we snuck into a golf course, country club, had a meal on shining carpet, right? Actually, yeah, yeah. And that carpet haunts me till today because we went to uh, St. Andrews and legend says that, what's the name of that place again? Algonquin. The, uh, the Algonquin is one of the uh, hotels who might have inspired The Shining. So yeah, we saw that carpet. It was the actual carpet uh, in the restaurant. Very creepy. And I kept waiting to see something like red rum on the menu, but uh, <laughs> alas, no such thing. Oh uh, yeah, I know. Which sort of fits with what we're going to talk about because there's some sort of scary stuff in this issue. At least I find it frightening. Yeah. It all fits well together. Yeah, I think it does. And we might hear Red Rum somewhere in there. <laughs> now, before we get too much further, though, we do need to take a moment to thank our sponsors. And we've got quite a few this month, actually. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades Live 
library, and usually it's tied into this month's issue of JLI in some way, shape, or fashion. This month, we picked JSA by Jeff Johns, Trade Paperback, Volume 1. And the reason we picked that is because, if you haven't read it, it is the reintroduction of Dr. Fate into the DC Universe. And Naboo, Dr. Fate, plays a big role in this issue we're going to be covering here. So this book is written by Jeff Johns and David Goyer, art by Stephen Sadowski and Michael Baer, covered by Alan Davis. It's 392 pages. It's huge. It's got 16 different comic books in there. Full color. It normally retails for $34.99. Right now, it's 42% off, so you can get it for $20.29. And let me tell you, if you love even the JSA a tiny bit, this is an absolutely fantastic read. Now, have you ever read this book, sir? Oh, man, I have this book. I love the JSA. I love the rebirth of the JSA. I love how these old superheroes came together again to be kind of mentors and an inspiration, even for the JLA. So I I just love these books. And that's when uh, Jeff Johns was kind of my darling back then. I was in love with these books. (laughs) This book made me stalk him around a convention back then. So uh, (laughs) a little creepy, a little single white female, but that's okay. That's okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, in addition to InStockTrades, another one of our sponsors are you people at home through Patreon. You know, uh, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services involved. And for the past several years, uh, us hosts have absorbed these costs ourselves. But really, it's grown considerably. And so we've launched the Patreon to help cover the bills to keep the lights running. So if you've been enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting www.patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Please consider uh, supporting the Firewater Podcast Network there. And we sincerely appreciate everyone's support, including these folks, like Bill from the Bat Pod. Chris Lewis, Devin Clancy, Martin Gray, Max Traver, Rudy Gostilio, Sean Ross, Tim Price, David Gutierrez, and Gord Tolton. Again, thanks to those folks, and please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Finally, and this is very exciting, uh, for the month of November, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is sponsored by the wonderful all-ages graphic novel, The Only Living Girl. From David Gallagher and Steve Ellis, the award-winning team that brought you The Only Living Boy, comes this thrilling new action-adventure series, The Only Living Girl. Hi, my name is Andra. People call me Z. I was a normal girl. I loved science, my bear, and my dad. One day, tragedy struck. But that wasn't the end of my story. I awoke in a patchwork world filled with mermaid warriors, insect princesses, robots. A world created by my dad, who had become a mad scientist. Now I'm stuck in a world that doesn't trust me, in a conflict with my father's creations. Luckily, I still have my friend Eric and my bear. I am the only living girl. The Only Living Girl, Volume 1, The Island at the Edge of Infinity, is available now in both hardcover and paperback from Papercuts. 
Our thanks to David Gallagher and Steve Ellis for that sponsorship. And if you haven't checked out Only Living Boy or Only Living Girl, you've got to get on that, folks. It is so good. All right, folks, as we get into this issue of Justice League, we want you out on the social media. Use our hashtag, which is PoundFWPodcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast. And really, this is all about building a community of online JLI fans. We want to hear your thoughts on this issue, the whole saga with Blue Beetle and Bialya, what's going on over in Justice League Europe. We're going to be talking about it a little bit later. Or just make fun of Boss's funny name or his funny accent. Because let me tell you, that's an easy shot. It's like low-hanging fruit, folks. <laughs> Speaking of that, boss, why don't you tell us, uh, what? how did you fall in love with the JLI? Where did you first encounter it? What made you decide that this was a book that you felt passionate about? Well, you know what? I always loved team books, and I loved the JLA, the JSA, JLI, JL Detroit. I loved all of those. But particularly, this this Giffen de Mateus team really touched something. I mean, inside me. Uh, it's <laughs> No, well, it felt like watching Friends. You know, I'm from the 90s. Mm-hmm. It felt like watching Friends with superheroes. You know, I needed to read fun comics. And back then, every character had a redesign in a red and black suit, eyes and creepiness. And, and they had pouches everywhere. So uh, this book kind of stood out and was just fun. It was just a fun book. So listening to the Invasion podcast and hearing you profess your love for the JLI book. So you're, so did you love it back then or did you rediscover through the Invasion podcast? Because it almost sounded like on that show that you were reading some of these issues for the first time. Some of them I was. I podcast with a guy who knows everything about comics. So Siskoid is just this Wikipedia of, of comics and he has a whole bunch of them. He should just sell them and buy a house or something. <laughs> he is quite terrifying with his encyclopedia knowledge. Oh yeah, it's crazy, it's crazy. I borrowed the books and started reading them again, because I read them, or some of them, back in the 90s, and Ah, I didn't really get into them, Mm -hmm. because I was, you know, I was dark. I was in a dark place, like everybody else. And... (laughs) So I, I, I kind of rediscovered them while I w- we were doing the Invasion podcast, and I really fell in love with them again. So I, I'm I'm buying all of them in trade paperbacks. That's fantastic. And, oh, yeah. You can hear Boss fall in love on that show. That, that's why I was asking those questions. I wasn't trying to put them on the spot, although it is kind of fun to catch him with his pants down. Not <laughs> it's figuratively, but anyway. Uh, no, almost. <laughs> but it, you can hear the joy coming through the microphone when you were talking about those JLI issues during Invasion. So I just well, knew that you were uh, you were an easy mark for this show. Oh yeah, especially in contrast with everything else that was going on in the nineties. The nineties were so glum; um, <laughs> they were extreme. <laughs> yeah, but they were extreme. But also, they they seemed to be directed by you know Zack Snyder. They were so so dark, and, <laughs> and, and so so I just you know I just fell in love with these books again, and and really enjoyed the writing and the the joke making, and the it looked like and it felt like these super heroes were alive and they had friends and they liked each other they hated each other but they worked together it, it was like watching cheers well they were like a family they really yeah. were it was, it was an office comedy but they had been cut and grown so close living under one roof that it really felt like a family yeah yeah it did well let's get into this folks so if you don't have your copies of these issues please go out to our website which is firewaterpodcast.com slash jli and there you'll be able to see some of the images from these issues i'll post some of the ones that we spend a little more time on otherwise get out and buy the comics yourself jeez people don't expect us to do everything for you. Anyway, this is Justice League America number 29 from DC Comics, cover dated August 1989. Now check this out. It was on the shelves June 13th, 1989. Do you know why that week is relevant, boss? 
I have no idea. Because six days after this comic hit the shelves, you could walk into your local movie theater and watch the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie. Oh, wow. That's right. That's right. So if you didn't pick up your comics on the day they came out, you could go into your comic shop a few days late, pick up your comic, and read it while you're waiting for the Batman movie to start because there was a big, (laughs) long line outside the cinemas. It was I waited in those lines myself. So just very exciting, the timing of this. Oh, hard to believe that there was ever time when that movie hadn't come out yet. You know, it's just, it's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's such an iconic movie. It set the tone for the whole animated series. I mean, it was great. In contrast, Batman in this comic, by the way, with what he was doing six days later on the big screen, and they're a little bit different kind of Dark Knights. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. So the cover price on this comic is $1. Hard to believe, for the first time, the Justice League comic price had increased from $0.75 to a dollar. It's ridiculously high price. I would never pay a dollar for a comic. What a ripoff. Oh, my gosh. And the cover is by Kevin McGuire. So, boss, why don't you tell the folks at home, describe the cover to them. Well, it's a cover where we have basically Blue Beetle in the center, nicely, brightly colored, and he's surrounded by hundreds of ladies, all types of ladies. And and they're kind of darkened up. So, Ted really, you know, pops out. And he has this munch, the scream type action going on. He has his hands on his head and he seems to be screaming if you're a blue beetle fan you're wondering what the hell's going on he's around ladies and he's screaming and his eyes are all like get me out of here it's a beautiful cover certainly eye-catching the art is great so yeah it's it's a very nice cover to see i'm glad you pointed out that beetle is really bright in contrast to the rest of it because you mentioned zack snyder earlier it almost looks like there's a zack snyder filter on all of it except for beetle uh exactly (laughs) but you know it's just it's such an amazing image because you know kevin mcguire drew dozens and dozens of women here and each face looks different and each face looks unique and each one's got a different expression it's really impressive oh yeah it is and it's an homage to his work i mean that's this is what he does he does expressions he does faces he drew women beautifully and differently so yeah it's beautiful it's great and one thing that occurred to me was uh, not what's on the page but what's not on the page which is all the women are beautiful they're all stunning but they're all fully clothed there is no excessive cleavage. There is no scantily cladness. There's no, none of that. You know, they had a real opportunity here to use sex cells on this cover, and they didn't. And it's the same inside. And I got to say, that's a bit of a testament to them that they didn't go that way. So it made me very happy. And I was looking at the original line work for this. You can see it either in the Modern Masters book from Tomorrow's, or you can find it online if you Google it. And it shows you what the original art looks like before it was colored, before the logo was put on. And it's kind of fun because behind the logo where it says just League America, McGuire actually drew in Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, and uh, <laughs> he, inked, he inked Bugs as well. He didn't ink Daffy, but you can you can see a completely inked Bugs on the inside underneath the logo, which is super fun. And he wrote along the bottom of the page, he wrote the cover I was born to draw. So <laughs> that's pretty apt given McGuire's skill set. Was well, pretty much perfect for him. Oh yeah, definitely. I have to brag. My copy is signed by not the cover artist, but my copy is signed by the internal artist. Uh, I've got Ty Templeton to sign my copy at Heroes back in 2017 when I met him. So that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Nicely done. So let's get into this. So plot and uh, layouts are by Keith Kiffin. Script is by J.M.D. Mateus. Pencils are by Ty Templeton for the last time. Oh, very sad. Inker is Joe Rubenstein. Letter is Albert de Guzman. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, who's labeled as our hero. And editor Andy Helfer, who is labeled as our flounder. So the issue itself is called Naboo on my mind, and the on is crossed out. 
and this is Naboo in my mind instead. Boss, when do you kick off our recap? Well, our adventure starts with a newly enhanced by the Gene Bomb post-invasion fire, uh, the very hot Latina fire-based superhero that we all know, flying in New York uh, to the pleasure of onlookers. Uh, getting back to the HQ, we find Barda waiting impatiently to start Fire's training, only to find that she has forgotten her mega rod, Big Barda's weapon of apocalypse, in the trunk of her car, who is now, well, the car is now stolen. Uh-oh. So, I know, plot twist. Uh, during that time, in <laughs> in uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, Batman called on Naboo, using Kent Nelson's body, uh, to bring Blue Beetle back to sanity from his comatose stasis-type affliction, much to Oberon's dismay, distrust, and wisecracks. That little guy has a mouth on him. <laughs> now, back at the ranch, Barda and Mr. Miracle are off to get the Megarod back, with the help of the marvelous mother box. Nothing like you've seen in the Justice League movie, the actual ping, ping, ping type mother box. <laughs> Fire wants to tag along, and Human Torch references ensues. Mm-hmm. At the hospital, Ken enters Ted Court's mind to find hundreds of beautiful ladies occupying his mind. Kent finds our favorite Blue Beetle with half his superhero costume on and looking, gazing really, into the bright light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'll take it from here. Ted then reveals to Kent Nelson that the reason he can't leave the Mindscape is an enormous, impenetrable stone wall, which represents this Azrael block uh, that we heard about last episode that was placed in his mind by the Queen Bee, ruler of Bialya. Meanwhile, Booster Gold has been locked up in quarantine until it can be determined whether the Queen Bee has also tampered with his mind. And we get a couple scenes of Booster where he's very worried about Beetle and he's also worried about himself. Now back at the hospital, Max and Oberon are getting very impatient. They're worried that Kent isn't getting the job done and uh, that maybe he's messing up Beetle's mind even further. With no other options available though, Batman insists on waiting for Kent to finish the job. Back in Ted's mind, uh, in order to work around the Azrael block, Kent sends Ted out of the mindscape back into the real world. Specifically, he sends Ted into the body of Kent Nelson, freaking out Ted because he's woken up in an old man's body. Then, Ted's body wakes up, being controlled by Kent. It's a little like Freaky Friday. They're sort of switched there. Then, Kent is able to switch their minds back to the proper bodies, bypassing the Azrael block, and then the procedure is repeated for Booster. Meanwhile, Scott, Barta, and Fire fly to New Jersey, tracking the Mega Rod. They have to stop several times for Fire who has to rest and replenish your flames. They discover the wrecked remains of Barda's car, along with three murdered teenagers inside. Barda's Megarod is still nowhere to be found, though, until our heroes are blasted by a huge explosion. Then, standing revealed is some kind of street punk who is brandishing Barda's Megarod as his own. Next issue, Teenage Biker Megadeth, or something like that. That's what they called it. Oof, all right. So this is a bit of a roller coaster, sir. Uh, what do oh, you yeah. think of it? You know what? It's a great comic. Two stories, and I guess two unrelated stories, maybe? It does feel like two completely independent comics. Yeah, it does. Both of them are great. I mean, it's a two-story comic book, so hey, I'm down with that. <laughs> the whole Beatles story is one thing, and the Barda story is another. And I kind of forgot that Barda needs her rod to have her costume, I guess? Or she never has her 
her costume. Well, I don't. Well, it depends on what you read. Like in the Mister Miracle series, I do think that the rod would sort of activate her costume to appear. But I think in general, she can just put it on like regular clothes too. Oh, so the, the, the she... rod gives her like blasting ability, but she's still super strong and tough and an amazing character even without the Mega Rod. But it's just oh, yeah. it comes with a lot of extra power, certainly. Yeah, Bardock kind of feels like what would happen if Wonder Woman had a temper yeah. <laughs> or had a mouth on her. You know, she she has no filter. She says what she thinks, and she's just great. I just love Barta. She is awesome. I love her as the, in the role of the trainer here. She's hilarious in that oh, yeah. role where she's planning to. Uh, she's really excited about blasting fire. She's really looking forward to blasting the hell out of her, which is hilarious. <laughs> she's uh, she's fantastic, and you know it's interesting. Barta, as far as I know, is not credited with being on the actual JLI team. You know, Mister Miracle is, and she always seems to be hanging around. But I don't think, and I'm trying to remember the who's who entries where I'm going here. But I don't think she's credited as being on the JLI. However, here she refers to Fire's teammates, and then her next sentence, she includes the word us, which implies to me that she is a teammate. So, you know, I, I put it out there to the folks at home. Do you feel like Big Bart is part of the JLI team or not? I mean, I personally do. I feel like she's part of the team, but I don't, oh, yeah. I don't know if she was ever technically qualified. Well, uh, you know what? I think she's fully qualified, maybe overqualified to be on the team. I mean, she's a superhero, a super-powered super lady. She's up there with the big guns. She could be part of the team. Maybe she never accepted to be part of the team, or maybe it, it's her choice. That would actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was hoping, because it kind of sucks if Big Barda was only known as Mr. Miracle's lady, you know. Right. But, you know, it was the late 80s, so that could have been that. Well, I like to think of her more, especially like in the Mr. Miracle comic, it, it's it's more like they're a duo. Sort of like it's gotten to the point where Aquaman and Mera are almost on equal footing now. Yeah. Uh, and it seems, you know, uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Bart, I kind of think of them in the same way. That's, that's oh, yeah. just my take on it. Oh, yeah, big time. And uh, I really enjoyed the Fire's new powers. Uh, that was, and, and it comes right out of Invasion, which is something I know about now. Uh, that so. story has, right, exactly. Now, that story's been brewing for six months. So six months ago is when they first indicated she got this power. And it's taken them that long to sort of slowly roll that out. That's a lot of patience. People don't do that with comics nowadays. So it's kind of nice to watch sort of the long game here. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then again, six months is a lot. Uh, they they could have uh, cut it down to three, maybe. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, new powers, well, I think it's all in that big fallout from the invasion. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were still figuring out who stays and who leaves and who loses and who wins powers and trying to figure out what they were going to do with these characters. And thank God that Fire won and became this lady, a human torch. Right. I love that. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier. I love the jokes about the human torch in there. They do one <laughs> oh, yeah. bit where uh, the guy says, you know, it's a bird, it's a plane. He goes, it's a human. And they say, don't say it. And then later on, uh, when she's flying, she says, fire on. And they crack a joke about not saying that. So I, I love that they recognize that she is essentially just a female green human torch. And, uh, uh, they, they don't care. They're just going to move forward with it, which is great. So who cares? You know, it's a character who catches on fire. It's not like it has to be the, the most unique power in the world. I love it. Yeah, and I think doing that, you kind of put aside the power sets and you, you start talking about characters more. So it's a good thing that he, these characters aren't just like the fire characters. They actually have personalities and, and, and lives. So they're much more than just fire. Yeah. yeah. And Justice League's always, uh, this incarnation of Justice League's always been more about the character than the 
heroics as well. So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, now, definitely. A couple different things that are sort of interesting about this is, you know, first I love that to see her enjoying her powers. You don't usually get to see that people having fun and like reveling in their powers. And I'm also glad they sort of acknowledge that she has to be trained, that she can exhaust her flame. So they gave her a bit of a weakness in that. I thought that was great. But the most recognizable thing for me is that when she's flaming in this comic, you can see her costume. You can see her gloves. You can see her boots. You can see the sort of, you know, essentially bathing suit she wears underneath it. Whereas years later, you don't see her costume underneath it. And they, they explain it as saying she actually completely transforms into energy. And so later on, when you see fire in the later years, they're saying she's a complete energy being. And that the, so the clothes have no relevance. So they just disappeared. She's basically nude when she's on fire. Uh, later on is how they explain it. And here, they're clearly sort of figuring it out. And it looks pretty cool, actually, kind of seeing the uniform through the flames. It's interesting. Maybe I just like it because I don't see it very often, but it's a, it's a neat effect. Yeah, I, I love it too. And, you know, the whole part about enjoying the powers is, once again, kind of a wink to the Human Torch, who was the only, you know, Fantastic Four who did enjoy his powers. Good point, good point. And seeing the costume actually made her, I don't know, it made her kind of relatable, I think, maybe. It, I, I enjoyed it too, but I don't really know why. Well, it's a neat look. You know, that may have come from Giffen, or it may have come from Templeton, I'm not sure, because Giffen did the breakdowns, and uh, he's credited his breakdowns, and you can always tell when Giffen does the breakdowns, because this issue is full of butt shots. So you always know it's a Giffen <laughs> comic when there's nine panels and butt shots. That's, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, yeah, and quality butts. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That goes without saying they're superheroes. Come on. Now, yeah. <laughs> flipping to the other storyline, I got a question for you. So the whole thing with Kent Nelson and Naboo, they spent some time going through that explanation. They spent some time cracking jokes about that explanation and kept the joke going throughout the whole thing. As someone, now, I, I don't know, did you read the Dr. Fate book? Uh, I didn't. Okay, I didn't. perfect. You're exactly the test case I want. So <laughs> their explanation of Kent Nelson and Naboo, was that just confusing as hell to you, or did it make perfect sense? When I read it first, it was confusing as hell then when i read it the second time i got it (laughs) yeah all right you see the the dialogue in there is just great because what oberon was saying was exactly what i was thinking i was living vicariously through oberon in that book i was like what you're a what you're a zombie with (laughs) what how is this working but second time around i kind of got it don't we all live vicariously through oberon all the time though really i mean (laughs) all the time that's how I feel. But okay, so I'm glad to hear that because I kind of figured, because I'm so steeped in the love of Dr. Fate that all this just comes second nature to me. So I kind of figured it would be confusing. And so it's nice to hear that, you know, it made sense the second time around at least. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. it's definitely a confusing mess. And I love that they sort of acknowledge it here by making it confusing, which is even more fun. <laughs> in the book, we have this dialogue and everybody's trying to get it. Mm-hmm. And I love that I was in there trying to get it. But afterward, understanding everything afterwards in the second reading. I was like, oh, well, this is the kind of banter you want from a JLI book. Yeah, totally agreed. Now, you mentioned something about Blue Beetle's costume in your recap, and yeah. dude, this blew my mind. I've read this comic a bunch of times over the years, okay? Uh, rereading it this time, I finally saw something, and I sort of hit myself in the head like a VA moment that I never saw this before. Ted is not wearing his costume. He's not wearing his own Blue Beetle costume. He is wearing his predecessor's Blue Beetle costume. Dan Gale the Silver Ranger wow. Golden Age, depending on how you want to look at it. He is wearing the previous Blue Beetle's costume. They never mention it in the, in the, in the story. They don't ha- 
hang a lantern on it. And in fact, everything is a single color wash. So unless you're really looking, you don't even notice, which I didn't until now. You can tell simply by like the belt and by his gloves. And they kind of give a slight hint that he's wearing chain mail. It all clicked. I'm like, blew my mind that he's wearing his mentor's outfits. Yeah, that's true. There's also the pattern isn't there. You know, you have this kind of beetle pattern on the the suit normally. Exactly. I thought he was like bare chested for a while until, yeah, that's right. He has like this chain mail on. Yeah. I just assumed the pattern was washed out because it was a single color uh, until I really noticed it. So uh, I went online and sure enough, other people, I'm not the first person to figure this out, but I felt like it. I was like, oh my gosh, I've discovered the Rosetta Stone, you know, or whatever. And so it makes me wonder, so what is that trying to tell us about Ted's psyche? Because this whole thing is supposed to be a deep dive into Ted's mind. And I don't know that we learned a lot other than he likes pretty women, but uh, what is the costume off the top of your head? Oh, why do you think he's wearing his mentor's costume? Well, maybe he sees himself as a continuity from his mentor. So being a continuity, he would somewhat wear the same suit or he walks in the same shoes. Yeah. Like a legacy? Like a legacy. I think it's it's underlining the legacy, but, you know, in a deeper meaning. Um, I don't know. No, you're probably right. Honoring Dan. Cause I was trying to think, does, like, does he see himself as Dan? I don't think so. I think you're probably right. It's probably more of a legacy and um, more of honoring Dan is probably how that works, which is really interesting. Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's part of this comic now. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> well, and I'm kind of glad I saw it, too, because going into this, one of my notes was, do we really learn anything about Ted, even though we spend all this time in his mind? And I feel like, again, other than a bunch of beautiful women, which really is no shocker, other than the costume, I don't know that we really do get a deep psychological exploration of Ted. No, no, unless the bright light is something that deeply touches Ted, uh, some like knowledge or, well, it's truth, I guess, or reality. And he wants to go towards this reality, this truth, uh, which is the bright light. But after a while, he says, well, eh, forget reality. Let's go back to the illusion. Where all the girls are. He may be a bit of a, uh, what's the word, hedonist. He, he likes the pleasures. Oh, yeah, just a bit. I mean, maybe inside his mind, he's a bit more serious, like his predecessor was. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up the light, because that's something that I felt they did really well. Uh, Demetrius is exceptionally good at bringing in like spiritual concepts without mm-hmm. getting overly uh, into the dogma of religion. So, you know, here you have the light, which is supposed to represent reality, the next phase of existence. And they talk about back on Earth is where all of our souls were veils and where God puts on a mask. And, and that world's the illusion. And they don't really get too preachy, though. And that's one of the things that the Dr. Fate book was so exceptional about, was they would touch on spiritual things without being too religious and without being too preachy. And I felt like that's what we got here. There was a spiritualness to it, but it wasn't, you know, banging you over the head with a particular type of uh, religious belief or insistence. And uh, I just kind of I like the way they just gently led you into it. Yeah, it's kind of like if they, they took out everything that's specific about religions and, and just left that underlying, not underlying, but this simple truth, which can be found in almost everything spiritual. It's it's just simple, easy to understand, and it's very well brought into this book. Well, one of the things that ties into that, too, is James DeMatteis, he doesn't claim to be a Buddhist, but he claims to follow a lot of the spiritual paths that are tied in with Buddhism. So I think some of this is sort of hinting at that without being so firmly cemented in it. So I, it, it's sort of like what we were saying a second ago about how it all sort of suggests the spirituality of it without being so mired in the specifics. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, and apparently uh, what you folks at home don't know is it 
took me eight times to say that, how many times I had to edit it and get it out of my system. So now back up topside, and I love the way they call that. So when you're out of the mindscape, you're topside when you're in the real world, which is kind of fun. Uh, there's a really sad scene with Booster. It's all in the art where he's just sitting alone in this room, and he's sitting on this bed, and the illustrations of it just really set home how nervous he is, both for himself and for Beetle, because, you know, supposedly Booster's been brainwashed too, and he just hasn't been triggered. So he's sort of terrified what's going to happen to him. Very sad. Yeah, and kind of like being inside Ted's mind, we kind of have a glimpse inside Booster's mind without going in, mm-hmm. you know, only with the facial expression with his, you know, slumped back. I mean, it says a lot, and he's just sitting on a bed, and that's quite incredible. That's the mastery of Ty Templeton. Just an amazing oh, yeah. illustrator. Yeah, that panel where, you know, he's got just the, the hooded eyes and the bags under his eyes, and it just, it says, like you said, it says everything. So, oh. Now, this is our last issue with Ty Templeton, which really is sad. Uh, it's mentioned in the issue that it's his last issue, but they don't really explain why. So, kind of strange. But next issue, we will get Bill Willingham, so that's exciting, and you folks at home might be sort of scratching your head. Yes, Bill Willingham, the man who wrote Fables for DC Comics, did start his career doing artwork. He's a great artist, so it'll be fun to see that issue as well. Now, the art in this issue, I do want to talk about it, because it's sort of, as much as I love Ty Templeton, I mean, he's got some of my favorite JLI stuff. This issue's, it's not as much of a standout as some of the previous Templeton ones. Like, for me, some of the high points, any shot of Barda, she is stunning and beautiful. And Batman is dead on. I mean, Batman is, it looks so good, it could be like merchandising. Uh, he looks that good. And Ted's face looks fantastic. The multitudes of women look beautiful in Ted's mind. And then Kent Nelson, I love his look. He looks very like sort of 1950s Leave it to Beaver kind of thing. But but surprisingly, the panels with fire aren't as flattering, which kind of surprised me because, you know, she's supposed to be sort of like the vivacious, you know, sexy one. But when he just draws her not on fire, it just doesn't seem to work. Now, when she's inflamed, she looks great. But when she's, again, when she's not, one of the things that stands out is how desperately she is in need of a costume redesign. And thankfully, it's coming. I don't, am, am I off base on this? No, no, you're right on point. The costume is, is quite horrible. Trying to be revealing without being too revealing, you know, looking to please the comics code with, you know, still having too much cleavage. And the hair is just awful. But it's maybe just because I don't like bangs. But the, the hair is just awful. Yeah. Awful, awful. Uh, especially compared to Barda, who's almost in every panel that fires in. So, you know, we have two different looking ladies and one of them is very nicely drawn, very late 80s. And the other one is like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and you know, maybe I'm being too hard. You know, my concerns are about fire, but I just named all those other things that are fantastic. So, you know what? I don't want to be downbeat on Ty's last issue. So I'll, I will retract what I said. It's a gorgeous issue <laughs> with just a few setbacks. Maybe that's the it, way to put it. It is. And you know what? He had me right at the end where you have this punk guy with the mega rod and we have all this Kirby crackle mm. coming out of the rod. That's so nice. So good. Uh, and, uh, you know, Barda is Templeton's favorite character in the JLI. I got a chance to talk with him at, at length at the Boston Fan Expo this year and I commissioned him to do a Barda sketch and he just talked quite a bit about how much he enjoyed doing Barda and that related stuff. So yeah, I, I, the, the Kirby stuff makes perfect sense that he would go lean into that. So that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, sir. Well, uh, any final thoughts? You know what? I really enjoyed this issue. For some reason, I really enjoyed that this is an issue with two stories in them, and yet I feel like they're all on the same team. It's two stories, but it's still connected by just being the JLI, and you feel like they're all on the same team. So I, I really liked it. Yeah, it's sort of like Jan, Marsha, and Cindy are off on one adventure, and Greg, Peter, and Bobby are off on their own adventure. They're still a family, exactly. but their own all 
doing their own thing. Yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, it is the moment you've all been waiting for. It is time for us to nominate... Plahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Boss are going to pick one moment, and one of them will walk away with a coveted Bwahaha Award. Boss, you're the guest. So, what is your nomination for the Bwahaha moment? Uh, my nomination is when Ted just says, forget reality, let's get back to that illusion. <laughs> in reference to, you know, there are no babes over there in the light. Right. Well, he's like, all right, so forget this. I'm going back to the illusion. <laughs> That's a good one. That's my favorite. I laughed out loud at that moment, so that's a great one. The other laugh out loud moment for me was also a Beatle moment, which, you know, it's appropriate. Beatles should win this issue regardless, I would say. But for me, it was after Beatle had been deprogrammed, and they're hanging out in the library all together. And Beatle is genuinely worried about his friend Booster Gold. You know, Booster and him, they're very, very tight. They're besties, and sort of like you and Cisco. And he's <laughs> concerned about the deprogramming of Booster, and he's concerned that Kent's going to mess it up, and all these things, and he's going on and on, and he's really getting worked up about it. He's got this long thing about, well, can't be able to pull it off and maybe poor Booster's gonna... And then they get interrupted with this, ah, I'm old! They hear it from upstairs. And clearly, that's what means that Kent and Booster have switched bodies, which means Booster's gonna be okay. And Beetle just has this kind of funny smirk on his face. He goes, never mind, because he knows that Booster's gonna be okay. I found that bit very funny. I will say, however, it took me so long to explain it that in that process, I realized your joke's funnier, because (laughs) it's easier to explain. So, I say that we give the award to the joke about the babes being in the illusion and reality sucking because there's no hot ladies there. So, uh, <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm <laughs> glad I sold it. So congratulations to Beetle and his uh, lascivious ways. He wins the Bwahaha Award, so please wear it with pride, Ted. Uh, it is as tangible as the laughter we give you. <laughs> All right, boss, I need to ask a favor of you. Uh, if you haven't noticed, the, the New York Embassy is just completely full of gorgeous ladies right now. They're just everywhere. It's almost like we're inside Ted's mind or something. I need to pop over to the European Embassy to talk about the Justice League Europe issue. Would you mind uh, hanging around here and entertaining the ladies for a while? Oh, no problem. I have croissants for everybody. Ah, perfect. Excellent. (laughs) Now, don't worry. We will bring you back at the end of the show. Uh, And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy in France for the fifth issue of Justice League Europe. The time is out of joy. The time... Is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. 
Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number five. from break and i'm here with our second co-host for this episode this gentleman is living proof that dc comics habit of rebooting their universe was ticking off fanboys long before the new 52 came along folks (laughs) additionally his sense of class and refinement insisted that a screening of superman the movie would only be good enough for this man if the president of the united states was also in the audience folks please help me welcome to the show mr bob fisher welcome to the paris embassy bob thanks for being here how you doing man well hey thanks rob for having me back on this is terrific and i've got a great song already picked out for Pod Dylan tonight. Bob, uh, this is not Pod Dylan, and I am most certainly not Rob Kelly. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. So, oh, thanks for having me back, Chris, on the Superman Movie Minute. How's Cindy doing and all the little Franklin Steins? Bob, I'm not Chris. This is the Irredeemable Shag. Irredeemable Shag. Oh, Ryan Daly's secret identity. Oh, of course. Bob, listen. What? My name is Shag. I realize that both of us have been podcasting for like a decade or something. And I know this is our first time finally together, but it's Shag. Michael Bailey's friend, Shag. No, that's not it. Oh, this is going to be that kind of night, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's going to be that kind of night. What a great introduction, though. And you're right. I've been ticked off about reboots way longer than anybody could possibly imagine. So I want to talk about this. All right. So, yeah, because, you know, me, I came to DC Comics because of Crisis. That was actually, I mean, I was already buying Firestorm in Justice League. But Crisis was really what opened the door for me to go, wow, this is the DC universe. I want to be part of this. So, you know, 1985, I do that. Fast forward to 2011, mm-hmm. the new 52 comes along, and I'm like, oh, excuse me, I guess this isn't for me anymore. I'm so sorry, I'll see my <laughs> way out. And I turn around, and I go, right. oh, look at all those grumpy old fanboys from the 80s who make a lot more sense to me now. <laughs> so tell me about this. Yeah. So you were reading DC Comics long before the crisis, and crisis comes along. What's that like? Oh, it was hard to take for multiple reasons. I wasn't, at that time, reading previews and 
and I wasn't looking ahead. So I really was almost caught flat-footed as I'm reading the comics thinking, well, they didn't really just kill Supergirl. I mean, they wouldn't, they didn't get rid of Superboy, really? Wait, wait a minute. What? 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 Right. They always would undo this kind of stuff, so sure. Always. At the end of Silver and Bronze Age stories, Clark, or even, it didn't matter who, Batman would even look at the camera and wink sometimes. <laughs> think, okay, guys, it's all back to normal. Don't sweat it. Nobody died. Everything back. Okay, it was just a story. Metropolis, Daily Planet, Lois and Clark. What? It's all different? For real? And then John Byrne hit with Man of Steel. And I thought, well, who the hell is John Byrne and what has he done with my Superman? <laughs> I, was, I was not a happy camper at all. And it took me a while to get back into it because once I got over the new origin story for Superman, particularly, mm-hmm. the stories, particularly, I think, after Byrne kind of left, uh, when we get into the Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway stuff and oh, Mike sure. Carlin and all that. Don't sell Roger Stern short. I love his stuff, too. And all of Roger Stern's other work. Yeah, I agree. And there was some really, really good stuff. But once I got past Byrne's overthought, um, and I'm not trying to bash Byrne. I don't want to be that guy. Well, you don't want John calling you, that's for sure. Yeah, (laughs) I do not want to call me, really. Reading this comic, it reminded me, the one we're going to talk about today, it reminded me so much of the the late 80s, early 90s and stuff when DC was, I guess, growing up. They weren't doing the the one-shots anymore. You can't just pick up a comic, read a story, and it didn't matter whether it was Superman, Justice League, that had nothing to do with it. All of them now became long-form stories storytelling. And I'm into that. I have no problem with that until the comics are five bucks a piece. Now we need to do something else. You know, that one story now is going to cost me $65. (laughs) Do I want to pay $65 for that? I am a big believer in the digital subscriptions uh, for that very reason. You betcha. And uh, the game has changed, and they know it. And, you know, comics will never be, again, cheap, disposable entertainment for kids. That ship sailed. When I was a little kid reading comic books in the late 50s, early 60s, and into the mid-60s, that's my sweet spot right there, Mm -hmm. 62 to 68. And at that time, there were as many girls reading comics as boys. It was a a down-the-middle 50-50 split. They weren't all reading the same kinds of comics, but they had comics for everybody. DC's line included funny books as well as comic books. You had Harvey, you had all of the comics. You had comics, right? Romance, westerns, war comics. It was like television. Flip a channel and you've got a whole different genre. Comics were, and nowadays comics are almost totally considered superhero, except for the few, the preacher, the this, the that. Well, I have a question about that. You know, apocryphally, yeah. you know, everyone seems to think that the girls who were reading comics back then, as you said, were reading other genres, not superhero comics. Comics. But when right. I sat down with my mom, she starts rattling off about Plastic Man and Alan Scott. And I'm like, Whoa, oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't see yeah. that coming. So do you remember girls reading superhero comics as well? Or were they reading? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. My, I have a sister. Uh, unfortunately, her brain is no longer with us. But when we were kids, she was reading as many of my Superman and superhero comics because we would we both would go to the store and we'd, you know, get a lot of the same 
stuff, but we'd get to the checkout counter at the convenience store. And if she had something that I had, I'd say, well, you can put that back and read mine. Go get that Casper. I haven't read that one yet. Oh, there we go. You know? okay. okay. So, you know, uh, technically we'd get home and the Harvey comics and the fun stuff and some of the romance stuff was hers, but she read all of, all of my superhero comics too. And my mother, that's how I actually learned to read. It's a long story. So the short version is my cousin turned me on, found a trunk in the barn full of golden age comic books and a Superman number 43 from 1946 was right on top. And I took that in the house and I was four years old and sat on the armchair and my mother read every word of that. And there were three stories in that comic and plus some backup issues. And that's what I learned to read on was that Superman. What's that word? What's that word? What's that word? Indestructible, invulnerable. So I learned to read comics early. That was the real thing. And my mother, after she kept reading that Superman comic over and over again, which blew me away, she said, go back out there. I think there's a Wonder Woman out there in that thing. Let's read that. I love that candy and a candy was my mother's favorite character that's a deep cut that's a deep cut and i was even at four i was i didn't know who any of these people were and i went back out to the barn and there was a sensation comic out there with wonder woman in it came back in and she read that i have still in my possession to this day a dozen of those comics that were in that trunk so i still have that superman 43 the first one i learned to read on that's special yeah it's 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 really special it's very cool so let's bring it back to Justice League. So, yes. all right. So 1985 comes along, crisis happens. 1986 comes along in the new, you know, post-crisis world. And I'm guessing you were reading Justice League. Maybe I'm making an assumption yes. there. I shouldn't. But no, so you're reading. Justice I was League, reading Justice League. Yeah. And suddenly, Justice League is funny. And what is what is that like for you? Yeah, that was kind of weird. I didn't know what to think at first. It was weird because they were doing Justice League with normal guys. The 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 Justice League was the original guys being funny. That was weird because it was like out of character for them. It didn't seem right. But when it switched over to bringing in some of the B characters and the the other guys, I thought, well, this this makes more sense because some of these guys were funny in their own right, being the backup scripts, Ralph Dibney and Metamorpho and Blue Beetle, you know, all these kind of guys. These were deep cuts. Mm-hmm. Shazam, Captain Marvel. Yeah, he was a comic book. That was a funny thing. I got laughs out of that. So there were characters, but it kind of put me off at first, to be honest with you, when I started reading Justice League, because all of a sudden, it didn't work. It was like, wait a minute, when did Justice League turn into a Jimmy Olsen comic? This this is weird. But it worked once they made Justice League like Europe and International. Uh, in Europe, it works, because you've got characters who you're used to them making wise cracks. You're not used to Batman being funny. There's nothing funny coming out of Batman's mouth. Not usually. There have been moments. He's had his moments. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but but that was the real thing with me is that it was kind of jarring. When did it click for you? What brought you to the point where you enjoyed it enough that you're willing to talk about it today? Unless you're here to bash it entirely, then that's a whole no, different No, 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 no. It was a couple <laughs> of years later because it had gotten to a point because of the Superman stuff that I was starting to lose interest in what DC was doing. So I didn't end my pull box, but it would be like sometimes two, three months or so before I'd go empty my box. Mm-hmm. So, so then you walk in and you got, you know, a stack of 60 comics or 70 comics and you go, whoa, that's a lot of comics. Right. So I would, you know, bring them home, bag them, board them, put them in their 
right spot and pick out a few that I would just go through. It was probably sometime after the death of Superman or around that time, the 92, 94 period of time where... I went back and started looking at those comics that I had gotten in the mid to late 80s, but not really read them or hadn't enjoyed them. But I was thinking, you know, this isn't bad. Maybe I should give those other ones another shot. And since I was no longer emotionally invested in them, then then I saw the joke. I saw, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. I see what they're doing now. I get it. You make an interesting point about the the emotional detachment because there's been a lot of eras of, of a comic series where I've been unhappy with whatever particular take they're doing on a character, and I'm like, oh, this I just can't believe. It. And when you're in the moment, you're so upset about it, you know. And then right. the emotional detachment comes later, and you're right. You can, like I there's some new Fifty Two stuff that I can enjoy quite a bit now because oh, absolutely, I don't feel the anxiety of it anymore. It's like oh, well, that was right. a fun read, you know. Well, I actually gave the new Fifty Two a shot. Oh, I I gave it a shot and a lot of my money. Yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> well, why don't we go ahead and get into the issue here? So, folks, we are here to talk about Justice League Europe number five from DC Comics, cover dated August 1989, on the shelves June 27th, 1989. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. And the cover price was a ridiculously high $1. This is, uh, uh, I mentioned this before just a moment ago on the JLA issue as well. This is the first issue of this series at the new increased higher price of a dollar. So, no longer three shiny quarters will get you a comic folks it's now mm-hmm. four shiny quarters so ouch ouch is right breaking the bank and the cover here is drawn by bart sears so do you want to describe the cover for the folks at home yeah it's a it's an interesting cover well interesting is a nice word for it i guess <laughs> it does tell the story but don't be fooled by flash and power girls but they're not in it that's true that's very true <laughs> <laughs> ah but the rest of it is kind of accurate this is very funny though her face not her body but her face and hair of sapphire that's a profile of dolly parton right there it does look like dolly parton and once my wife pointed that out to me i now hear dolly in all of her dialogue in the comic oh wow that adds a whole different dimension to the book yeah you got to do it with a southern dolly parton sweetie pa accent (laughs) and and it works you got to finish describing for everyone at home we've got sapphire but what's sapphire we got sapphire is smooching up on metamorpho on the cover and behind them is uh, Power Girl, Flash, and Captain Adam in the background there holding on to Java and fighting with Java to keep him from ripping, well, he's trying to probably rip Metamorpho's head off, which we'll talk about in the story. (laughs) Uh, The cover, it does what it's supposed to do, I guess. It's not one of my favorite covers. And then once I, you know, got the whole Dolly Parton thing in my head, I can't get that out. And why would they put, uh, uh, oh, I know why. That's a dumb question. Of course, I know why they put Power Girl butt on the cover well she's not it's not just her butt it's the back of her it is at eye level if you're looking at metamorpho and uh, sapphire smooching it's where the eye goes that's certainly true there's where the eye goes well unlike you sir i like this cover quite a bit i like the different layers of it you know you've got in the foreground you've got metamorph you know rex if you as we find out in this issue rex and mm. sapphire being all sweetie face and then the background right. it's almost like a separate layer and it's just insanity back there i mean java is just raging and you know, captain adam and Power Girl are both powerhouses and they're holding him back with all their strength and Flash is pushing like with all of his might but clearly he can't do a thing I mean it's you know, this guy's super strong and I, I just and, and then you throw in Java's suit is black 
And the way they've done this all-black cover, Java just disappears into the cover. It, there's no line work on his jacket. It's just black, uh, mixing in with the black background. And it's a really stark effect. And I think it looks really, really sharp. Yeah, I did enjoy that once I figured it out because I kept thinking, what are those disembodied hands? Or who are those hands? That's not... <laughs> I kept thinking, is that elongated man? No, those aren't his hands. They're going to... And then I had to trace it back and realize, oh, that's Java back there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it does. And Captain Adam is frantic. He looks like he's about to fall apart. Right. Absolutely. So that gives you some idea that Java's a pretty powerful guy. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so, and, and I love the word balloons too, by the way. I'm a sucker for word balloons on comic book covers. I, I, <laughs> a lot of people can't stand it. They may, they bring me so much joy when there's a word balloon on the cover. So this thing's like a, it's a win-win for me. I think it's fantastic. It's super fun. And it's this is a departure too for Justice League Europe because Justice League Europe was supposed to be the more serious of the Justice League books. You know, they, they were still going to have some comedy. But this issue is right. definitely more of a comedic one. They, they yeah. broke the mold after four issues of serious tone. Uh, we get some jokes in this one. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of a transitional issue too from a mission that just happened and now they're setting you up for what will happen. Yeah. And I'm finding this particular issue is more of a personality. There's not a lot of fighting in this one. They're not going to be fighting any big baddies here. It's more of a what's going on in the personal lives of these guys. Which is very much in the model of the Justice League America team because that they've dealt with that kind of thing since the beginning. So it's nice to see a little bit of that coming over here. And you're right. It's absolutely a character piece because... You know, yes, if, character piece. If that's you, what I was If you step for. back and look at the team, Captain Adam, Flash, and Animal Man all have their own ongoing series. And so their characters are already being explored every month in those books. And right. then you look at the other characters, so Rocket Red, well, he's been part of the team since the series began, you know, two years ago. So they've done lots of exploration on him. Elongated Man, everyone knows him. And they've already done some good exploration with him in the series with him and Sue. So it's really left Metamorpho and Power Girl as undeveloped. So this is the mm. chance for Metamorpho to shine, which makes it great. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the issue and uh, we'll do a recap and then we'll kind of share our thoughts on this thing. So uh, All right. plot and possibly the breakdowns, it doesn't specifically say, uh, by Keith Giffen, though Keith typically did the breakdowns for this. And I'm guessing this is Giffen because as I flip through it, there are a lot of butt shots in this comic and Giffen <laughs> loves himself some butt shots. There are a few butt shots. <laughs> yes. Script is by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler is Bart Sears. Inker's Joe Rubenstein. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. You want to take us through the first half of the issue, sir? Alrighty. Well, we start with Captain Adam. He's been called back to New York by Max Lord. And Captain Adam is pretty sure that he's going to get a dressing down, as they would call it in the military. And he's going to tell everybody about it, that it's not his fault. And he's just whining, whining, whining for two pages <laughs> on his way to New York. And they also use it as kind of a flashback to the mission and that he's trying to say, well, it wasn't my fault. But in fact, I call him Captain Attitude. Right. Yeah, that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah because he is really in a bad mood. And apparently the mission didn't go like was expected because he made a decision. And now he thinks that they're calling him back to New York headquarters to yell at him and kick him out or just do terrible things so he won't be part of the Justice League Europe. And then we switch to the Paris Embassy, where Sapphire has shown up and she's talking to Catherine. Catherine is the liaison there. She kind of runs the place, tries 
to keep the place in order in Europe there. And here comes Sapphire to say, hey, I am Metamorpho's wife. What? <laughs> and here's our first butt shot as Catherine is leaving the room. Nice. Careful there. I have a tremendous comic book crush on Catherine Colbert, so I, I'm willing to let you slide, sir. <laughs> okay. I will be careful. And I can see why. <laughs> well, no, she is the complete package here. She is brilliant. She is probably the smartest person in the embassy. She's got it together, and she just does happen to be incredibly gorgeous as well. Incredibly but, uh, she, gorgeous. She's the whole package. Well, I, I love the fact that Max Lord even says that they don't even know how the thing would run without her. Mm-hmm. She's very calmly pouring a cup of what looks like coffee, and we have Dolly, I mean, Sapphire, <laughs> saying, well, I need to see my sweetie. Where's my sweetie? <laughs> and Catherine then goes to tell Metamorpho, and here comes my first yuck-yuck as Catherine goes to tell Metamorpho that he has a guest. He says, oh, man, because he was watching the Three Stooges, and he loves them in French. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, which I need to hear myself. I need to find a French version of the Three Stooges somewhere. Well, a Curly's voice is so distinct, it would be interesting to see what they got for that. I know. It would not be if it's just some other guy. It's got to be Larry Moe and Curly. you got to have those attitudes to be there and the voice, especially with <laughs> Slightly. You know, it, it's you got to have that or it's not curly. So then Metamorpho says, okay, and then Sapphire is jumping all over him. Hey, sweetie, how are you? I love you, dear. Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's yelling, he, Metamorpho, uh, Catherine? Catherine? Oh, yeah, we didn't say that. Metamorpho was on a mission, and he got hurt and lost his memory, and it has not come back. So he doesn't know that he's married and doesn't know his own name, doesn't know pretty much anything, except he's got these weird powers. But uh, he was part of the Outsiders, and uh, I think he was member, a founding member of the Outsiders. He, he was a founding member of the Outsiders and died, I think, on one of their missions and then came back to life, I want to say, during the invasion. And yeah, he yes. came back with no memory. Yeah. And all of a sudden, here he is just enjoying the Three Stooges and Sapphire, who is Simon Stagg's daughter. And she is, you know, long blonde hair and voluptuous and southern sweetie pie and not the brightest bulb in the package. <laughs> And a daddy's girl, which we'll get into. So then she's, like I said, she's sweetened up on Metamorphone. He really doesn't understand. And he's not really warming up to her right away either. He's kind of saying, Catherine, help me out of this. And Catherine basically then says, I think I'll leave the two of you to discuss this. And <laughs> and you can just see the look on Metamorpho's faces. No, no, really. This, you really don't want to leave. I just, that cracked me up. Told you she's a smart one. <laughs> yes. So she gets out of there. And then we go flashback over to uh, New York again where Captain Attitude I'm going to have to quit saying that because then I'm going to I'm going to call him that forever if I don't quit that but Captain Adam he's back there he's at the headquarters and is uh, met by Jean Jones uh, the Martian Manhunter and he's still spouting off this is you mean a lot of crap going on and Martian Manhunter says no I don't think you quite understand the situation Captain Adam is being a real jerk he's not listening to anybody he's just in his own world ranting and raving because because he's pretty sure that he screwed up and that they're really going to cut him to pieces on this thing. And then uh, Max and Oberon show up and Max is trying to tell Captain Adam 
to just calm down. That's not why you're here. And Adam still wouldn't listen to him. He just still just rants and raves and goes on with it. And while they're trying to sort that out, we flash back to Paris. And the Dibneys have just been on a little shopping spree, not fling, but for the joke, it had to be a fling. There was Mm -hmm. a joke in there. So they have a little conversation because they've just been shopping and Ralph wants to let the wife know that, well, first time in Paris and I wanted it to be special. So I thought you could use a fling. And then they get into some awkward flirty conversations about Sue not jumping on the first hunky man she finds, maybe the second or third one, but not the first one. (laughs) And, you know, Ralph gets a little whatever. They're still playing. And then she says, well, not that Captain Adam thing again. And I'm going, what? Do I need to read back further? Don't tell me that Captain Adam and Sue had a little. No, not at all. Just some of the women have uh, noticed how attractive he is. And, you know, given the way Justice League has played loose and fast over the years, uh, at least this incarnation of all the guys being a bit lecherous and and chasing the women, there's absolutely no reason the women shouldn't get their turn to chase after Captain Adam's beefcake. Gotcha. And with that white costume he wears, there's probably in real life not a lot hidden. That's right. Exactly. So, so, yeah, she flirts. It's not a typical 60s Ralph and Sue conversation, but I can see why it would lead to this. And they're still a very close couple. And it makes my heart feel good to know that Ralph and Sue are still a wonderful married couple. Oh, they're absolutely adorable. And Sue also looks really good in a little French outfit that she's bought. And they get back to the embassy where Catherine, and she lets them know what's going on, that they're in there. Metamorpho is married. What? 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 And then Ralph stretches himself to go listen, you know, to eavesdrop on him. I would have had just his ear go. I think that would have been funnier. <laughs> but uh, he, he stretches his neck. Well, I and think he wanted to see the in. wife, too. Yeah, I think so, too. So he's sneaking in the eavesdropping, and Catherine and Sue are making little jokes about being married to uh, a superhero. I mean, Catherine says something about, I can't imagine, you know, marrying an element man. And uh, Sue reminds her that you're talking to somebody who basically is married to a living hunk of nutty putty. (laughs) And... uh, was there ever really a nutty putty? Because I remember being silly putty. I'm assuming that's them dodging a copyright issue. And, and then we uh, actually go into the room with Metamorpho, Rex, and he's now just finding out his name is Rex, and she's calling him Rexy and Sweetie Pie and Hunky Dory Durr. And, and uh, imagine Dolly saying that in a nice southern little sweetheart accent. Now, yeah, you're just the sweetest little thing, my honey pie, <laughs> but you don't remember any of that. Oh, no. And he's saying, well, don't cry. Don't, don't, don't. Don't cry again, for you know that. But you don't remember. You don't remember even being killed. You don't remember that, or anything. and then she mentions a black nighty, and he says, "Oh, the little slinky one." Yes. Oh no, I don't know. It doesn't ring a bell. That was pretty funny too. So another joke, almost a joke per page. That was really kind of cool. Then we're flashing to the next thing, and this is the part that there where I just laughed out loud. To be honest with you, while they're talking about, and she's explaining to him that they're married, and there's another Sheldon drop in the second part, but he's just starting to come to grips with that. And then, boom, we hear a big noise in the hallway and slam. (laughs) Java makes his appearance and he says, I'm looking for my wife. And uh, I think it's Ralph that says, well, the dating service is down the block a little bit. (laughs) And when uh, Java mentions my wife, Sapphire, and then I think it's Ralph again that says, "Uh, Sapphire, you mean as in Mrs. Metamorpho? Uh Uh-oh. And then all fun breaks loose as we go back then to New York and to see if the Martian Manhunter was able to calm down Captain Adam. And what did Max Lord actually want to say to him? And then I think I take it from here. 
so Captain Adam continues to rail against everybody. You calling him Captain Attitude's perfect. And uh, even though no one has accused him of anything yet. So Max, <laughs> at this point, has had enough. He yells at Captain Adam and throws him out of his office and tells him to wait outside while they, uh, without him, deliberate their decision on what they're going to do. So Captain Adam is on the outs and he's beating himself up horribly about it. In fact, he goes downstairs and he's rude to ice about it. Uh, and, and, and again, she did nothing. It's all, all him. He's frustrated. So back in Paris, uh, Metamorpho is remembering pieces of his life, including Sapphire. It's all starting to come back to him. And then she drops the bombshell that Metamorpho is the father of her child. And right at that moment when he's like, what? what? Their talk is interrupted <laughs> by the fight in the foyer featuring Java versus Animal Man and Elongated Man. Again, cutting back and forth, we cut back to Captain Adam. Now he's flying back to Paris. He's left New York. The whole hoo-ha's over there now. And he's reflecting on how well it went in New York. So apparently, <laughs> uh, you know, all that worrying was for nothing. And he's still in charge of the JLE and now has equal command status with Martian Manhunter. So there we go. Way to go, Captain Adam. And so Captain Adam returns to the embassy and he finds both Animal Man and Elongated Man just casually sunning themselves outside. They look like they're having a nice afternoon. And when he asks them about it, they explain that, well, they're getting out of the way while Metamorpho and Java trash the inside of the embassy. (laughs) Before Captain Adam can even go inside, Sapphire's dad shows up, Mr. Simon Stagg. And you'd know him by his eyebrows. So he shows up and explains that it's his fault that Java is there. And then once they get inside, Captain Adam's explosively angry, uh, causing everyone to finally stop fighting and start talking. Then we jump forward into later that night now. Captain Adam is talking with Metamorpho, and he's apologizing to him. He's saying, hey, I'm sorry I was so hard on you. And Captain Adam commiserates with Metamorpho about how Sapphire sided with her father and left with Java. So with Metamorpho's memories returned, he isn't really mad at Sapphire, but he is still upset that the outsiders, his former teammates, never came looking for him. So Captain Adam says that the JLE is now his family, and they'll always be there for Metamorpho. And the issue ends with this really lonely, sad panel of Metamorpho with his head in his hands. And it says, next issue, the terror you never thought we'd never ever reveal, the JLE goes back to school. That is the French lesson. Can't wait to talk about that one next month. But for now, Bob, we've just now wrapped up JLE number five. What'd you think of it? Did you enjoy the issue? Oh, yeah, actually quite a bit. More than I expected to. And it's it's weird because, you know, we talked about me getting back into this, but I had literally not read a JLE issue since then, since the 90s. Mm-hmm. Three years ago when we set this up, I read it. <laughs> it was three years and, ago too, folks, by the way. <laughs> I know. It really was. I pulled it out and read it then and then I read it again and I've been reading it over you know to get ready for this yeah I like it a lot actually it's not what I remembered it was so weird I didn't remember one bit of this not one sentence not one joke not one line not one I didn't even remember Catherine at all oh wow for example so what I did was go back and listen to your previous couple of episodes talking about the two issues that came before this and then I read number four to get a handle on well what the mission is Captain Adam all upset about. But yeah, I really liked it a lot. It's It was surprising to me that basically the characters, Metamorpho and Sapphire and Stag and even Ralph and Sue Dibney, were basically the same characters they were in the 60s, but not over the top as funny, particularly Metamorpho. Ralph Dibney had some jokes in his 60s backup issues in The Flash, but he was a detective and those were pretty much serious detective shows with a little cutesy love interest going on. I found this really entertaining. I was actually surprised and laughed out loud several times, probably at places where they didn't even 
want it to be funny. <laughs> it made me laugh anyway. Yeah, and getting back into Metamorpho a little bit because I did miss him. But as far as the issue goes, yeah, I think it was really good. And the storytelling in the art was better than I remembered it. I was surprised. I was surprised. Well, I want to touch on something you mentioned about the humor and how like the Metamorpho stuff, the humor in the old days and how it's toned down a bit. I mean, you're absolutely right. Now, it's yeah. it's it's worth pointing out at this point about we, we've you've heard us talk about it in the recap and everything, and we'll just get right to it. Sapphire. <laughs> this is a tough character to accept in this comic, okay? She is yeah. very much the stereotypical, I mean, ridiculously so, stereotypical dingbat blonde character that you would see, you know, in, in this sort of fiction. And in yes. textbook case, it's really, in a lot of ways, uncomfortable to read because it's so stereotypical. However, when you go back to the source material, you look at the Bob Haney and Ramona Freight oh. stories with Metamorpho, that book was mostly a humor strip. It was, you yeah, know, it was a humor strip. Yeah, it was almost it, almost like an Archie comic. The, the the humor was so outrageous, except you throw in crazy superhero antics. And yes. Sapphire was a huge uh, parody of those types of characters. She was some of the comic relief. I, I, I pulled a quote from an old uh, Bob Haney, Ramona Freighton issue that I covered a long time ago on one of my hmm. shows of Sapphire. I mean, I'm not kidding. This is her dialogue back then. Daddy Kins left without giving me my allowance again, and I'm down to my last thousand. So, I mean, <laughs> and that was about her. She was sad because she didn't have enough money. I mean, that's the kind yeah. of ridiculous, over-the-top yeah. humor lines they gave her. Yes. Well, it's hard to accept her in this comic. I kind of feel like Giffen and DeMatteis toned her down quite a bit, actually. Oh, they toned her down quite a bit. And the way she dressed in the 60s, they've toned her down here quite a bit. I don't know how they would write her today. I, I would think, though, because there are people like her. I know people like her. But but she has written, like you just said, she's a dingbat. I mean, I can't imagine, just in the story alone, just in this story alone, what we learned, if you knew nothing else about these people, you're a guy, you've lost your memory. Now a woman comes in and tells you she's your wife. But not long after that, minutes practically, another big gorilla guy comes in and says, no, she's my wife. Right. What? And you think, wait a minute. And then you think, well, there must have been some logical reason for it. Daddy Ken said you were dead and this would be a good safe marriage. What? I'm sorry. If my wife dies and her parents say, you know, hey, or somebody says, hey, here, marry her sister or something because it's what? What are you talking about? It's right. No it makes no sense whatsoever. But then as adults with brains, we start thinking about the actual what do you mean you're married to Java with everything that marriage entails i don't want to think of that lifestyle that that home situation and now he wants her back kind of and she definitely wants to be back with him with metamorpho with rexy baby but as soon as daddy can shows up she says well i guess i better go well we what? don't see that it happens off camera so it, it's off it's, camera no. you do wonder what happened there and it's very sad i mean it is so sad you're saying that you have undying love for me until daddy shows up and says let's go and then you leave with daddy and the big monkey guy who's not really a monkey guy he's a big 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 guy well if i remember right uh, i think he's actually cro-magnon i, I think he he's is like cro-magnon it's like an experiment yes. stag did on him or something like that exactly yeah. exactly Stag has been uh, experimenting on people and critters for quite some time. He's the stereotypical billionaire mad scientist. I think he was supposed to originally be like a joke character of Lex Luthor. He was the you bad know? guy in half of those Metamorpho stories. Oh, I yeah. Had. In the Metamorpho, he was always the bad guy. <laughs> right. 
great. Yeah. And anytime anything happened in the beginning of the book of the Metamorpho original stories where you thought, oh my God, what? That's terrible. Who would have done? Oh, it's going to be daddy. Right. Daddy did it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's totally unbelievable. Who would believe a guy with weird hair, eyebrows, a funky face would have a lot of money and a hot daughter and get away with anything? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Took me a minute to see where you were going with that. <laughs> well, before we just do veer too hard into politics, we end up with a lot of comments in the thread. Let's yeah, just, we don't want to go there. Let's just dodge around that one. So, Metamorpho, yeah. like, it's sad because even after she's gone and he's yes. talking to Captain Adam, he doesn't blame her. In his own words, he says, Believe it, Sapphire's a good girl. She's always been a daddy's girl. She can't say no to him. And then, you know, and he's not too impressed with himself anyway. He sees himself as a monster. Right. So he's thinking, why would she want to be with me anyway? But, you know, the, right. the other sad part about this, too, is they Rex finds out he has a child with Sapphire. And he doesn't even yeah. know the sex of the child at this point. He doesn't know what's happened to the child. I mean, she may have told him something off camera that we hadn't seen. But either way, she right. has left. And he's got a child out there in the world that he's never met. Yes. And that's just heartbreaking. Yes. That is heartbreaking. And then the sadness at the end. Oof. So even without his memory, and we think if you lose your memory, there's a lot of stuff of your personality that's made up because of your memories and what happened. And I've always thought that was interesting when people lose their memory. Are they still the same person? Because a lot of those memories like him at one time loving and wanting to be with Sapphire. But that was always kind of the poignant triangle part was Sapphire was a daddy's girl. She was in love with Rex. Rex was in love with her, but he didn't think that she could really love him. Kind of like the thing in Marvel. Sure. You couldn't really love me because I'm just a big rock goo thing. Well, but I do. Those of us who have great wives are very lucky that they love who they love for whatever, because we're goo. I, I think every comic fan is, who's in a relationship is pretty darn thankful for the person you they're with. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel for Metamorpho here saying, you know, well, how could she love me? Well, why was I doomed? Why am I condemned to have this stuff? I'd rather just be Rex Mason, this guy, and then I can love the woman I I want or have the woman I love. I'm glad you mentioned his name too, because yeah, this is the issue where he, because his memory's been gone, he finds out his name is Rex. And there's some Rex. funny bits in there about him, like he's not real comfortable <laughs> with the name Rex. He doesn't really like it. So there's no, who would name his kid Rex? Right, makes for some good humor. I dig on that. Yeah. I like that quite a bit. Yeah. A couple other quick things to mention about the story. I mean, they do mention how he's upset that the outsiders never came looking for him, and mm. I don't know again because I am not reading ahead. I don't remember if that ever gets addressed, so I'm gonna have to watch for that. That's interesting because I would like to see if. If, you know, Geoforce or one of the other members of the Black Lightning of the team see Metamorpho and be like, oh, hey, dude, what's up? You know, kind of thing of uh, acknowledging <laughs> he's alive and that they didn't even bother to come by and say hi. Right. Just assumed he was dead. Yep. Captain Attitude. So we, we haven't really talked about that beyond <laughs> that. So, wow, what a jerk. I mean, like, what a jerk. I mean, he's the protagonist, one of the lead protagonists of the book, and we're supposed to be cheering for him all these issues. And you get here and I just wanted to tell him to shut up myself. I mean, I he was really irritating. Obviously, he was written that way on purpose uh, to, right. to get on our nerves, but boy, it was effective. Yeah, it was really effective. And the fact that, you know, here he is, the leader of the JLE now, and he's bitching about everything from the fact that they've given him the wrong personnel to work with, that nobody but Ralph speaks French and Catherine, and it just goes, oh, I mean, he's bitching about everything from the nitpickiest little things to whatever he thinks he may have screwed up in the invasion thing. Thing. He doesn't listen to anybody. And I'm sorry, you know, if I fly into a room, I don't care what kind of superpowers 
I have or who I am. But you fly into a room and there's the Martian Manhunter for crying out loud telling you to calm down. You better calm your butt down. <laughs> you know, calm down. And he just doesn't listen to anybody. He won't listen to Max. And they're all basically trying to say, hey, good job. Nice thinking on your feet out there. You're still the leader. But, you know, I mean, he even complained. He said, yeah, do you ever call Batman in here for a debriefing is what really Max and Oberon and, and Martian Manhunter wanting. It's just a debriefing. It's just tell us what happened in your own words and blah, blah, blah. And he's thinking they're there to read him the riot act or something. And he just won't listen to anybody. Which is interesting. Being a military man, you know, you think you'd be a little used to taking some orders and, and respecting the chain of command, but uh, not in this case. And that's what kept going through my mind, too. But I mentioned a couple times, and even in the artwork, I was thinking, for a military guy, and so straight and all this stuff, would he be flying in loops and doing all that kind of fancy... F- wouldn't he just be kind of going straight from point A to point B, military? Get there and wait? Hurry up and wait? Straight? I don't know. That would make sense, but if you but if you could fly, I mean, come on. We would take advantage of that. I know. That <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know, military. Aye, yeah. sir. Now, in, in a lot of this, too, is we sit here and we psychoanalyze this comic from 30 years ago and talk about the military. Right. At the end of the day, it was for laughs. I mean, that, that's why they laughs. had Captain Adam acting that way. We know that. Yeah. We're not taking it that far seriously, folks. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it, it seemed out of character, but at the same time, it was a, there was a, you know, using the three students, a, reason. a couple good yuck yucks out of it. Yeah, and, you know, it, it got you from point A to point B and some nice artwork getting there. I think overall the artwork is pretty good in the comic. I really liked it. And the storytelling through the art is good. You can, once you've read it now, you know, it's easy to look at it and see what's going on. Yeah. Where a lot of times talking head character things, you don't get that. They did a really nice job, I think. And it's kind of broken up by pages like that. So it was real easy to glance at a page and know what's happening in that little conversation. I appreciate that especially. That was really well. As you said, they broke the story really, really well. And now Keith Giffen's not credited as doing the breakdowns, but he did do the breakdowns for most of the previous issues. So I got to think he was probably still doing the breakdowns. But some of the articles I've read from Bart Sears says that he didn't always follow those breakdowns. So I think I think this issue is probably somewhere in the middle. Again, given the number of butt shots and given a few of the nine panel grids, <laughs> I think Giffen definitely had a hand in it. But there's a lot, a lot of Sears DNA in this thing, which is nice. Now, normally in the previous issues, Bart Sears was inked by Paulo Marcos. Now, this issue is Joe Rubenstein, and there is a little bit of a difference. It's sort of a softer side. Uh, everyone's a little less chiseled as far as, because mm. Sears has really uh, got a lot of sharp edges in his stuff. Now, I think, for me personally, while I do like this issue, and I love Joe Rubenstein as an inker, I do think mm-hmm. Pablo Marcos is probably the better inker for Sears at this point in his career. And part of it is, there's something in Captain Adam's face that's just off to me in this issue. And I think it's in the ink. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that happens a lot, too. But, you know, I, I did like the art overall. I liked it a lot. And his, uh, his faces are different. I mean, Catherine doesn't look like Sue, who doesn't look like Sapphire. I mean, they're all different. See, I'm going to disagree uh, with you there. See, that's interesting. Okay. So you're seeing yeah. something different than I'm seeing. Because uh, where what I, I wanted to bring up that specific point. And this all stems from Power Girls, where I'm going from this. Now, Power Girl's mm. not in this issue. However, she's been in the previous issues. And there's a lot of people who don't like Bart Sears' rendition of Power Girl. Because she looks, um, their words, uh, she looks mm-hmm. sort of butch or ugly, as they might say. Oh. Um, but mm-hmm. looking at this, you know, Catherine Colbert, uh, Sue Dibney, and Sapphire, to me, uh, first of all, they're all gorgeous. They're absolutely stunning. Right. But to me, there right. is a bit of a slight sameness in their faces. But the hair is the 
real distinct differences. You can immediately tell right. who they are by the hair. But Power Girl's face is so different and so distinct. So while Power Girl may not be a face that people necessarily warm to, it's interesting looking at this how the other characters do look sort of the same. So I think it's, even though Power Girl may not be everyone's favorite, I think it's worth noting how distinct she looks. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I did have to double check. I had to go back because there was a scene where I originally thought it was Catherine and Sapphire talking and it was Sue. Yeah. And then I noticed, oh, well, Sue's got kind of bangs on her hair. The hair was different. Yep. Well, she's got a beret on too. And I think and that's, she's inten- got a beret, I think that's so intentional to help you tell the to difference. To make them that, that different. Yeah. So you're probably right. I guess I was looking mainly at the difference between Sapphire and Catherine. Sure. Now, there's some other funny bits in the art that I really like. Like uh, at one point when they're fighting Java, you know, Animal Man and Elongated Man had just been sort of hanging out when Java mm-hmm. shows up. So they right. end up fighting Java and Animal Man's actually in flip-flops. So there's a couple shots where he's just <laughs> leaping around in the air, battling him in flip-flops. So I just thought, that's a great little art touch because he did catch him completely <laughs> unexpected. I like that. And then uh, Captain Adam's hair, uh, I mentioned earlier, has been cut short because all the previous issues he had these long, luscious mullets. It was, it was really like this big silver mullet and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. So I guess what's happening in the Captain Adam issues has just caught up with us in just, Justice League Europe because Captain Adam's got a, a pretty big story going on in his own book right now. So I imagine he's probably back in the military or something like that right. to, to get no more, was it business up front, party in the back, no more of that. <laughs> yeah. Finishing up a couple thoughts on the art and I didn't notice this in previous issues and I'm surprised I didn't and because it's Bart Sears trait, I should have, but eyebrows are really a thing in this comic. <laughs> wow. I mean, metamorphose <laughs> eyebrows are just massive. Simon Stagg's eyebrows, I mean, you could you could, you could could hide in those things. They're so big. Marsha Manhunter's brow is essentially an eyebrow. Huge, yeah. Uh, Maxwell Lord's got giant eyebrows in this thing. And it just, it adds a style that uh, I, I love in Bart Sears. It's just a fun thing. Well, and this is my last comment, the last panel of the book. You know, the all-white mm. panel mm-hmm. with Rex. It's just, he's this tiny little little silhouetted figure sitting in a chair. He looks very, very small. You feel like he's completely in the white space, all alone. His head mm-hmm. is hanging in his hands because of all the situation. It's, it's perfect. It's exactly yes. like you said. You look at that, you know the whole story right there. You don't need to see anything. And there's not even a word yep. balloon in the panel. It's, there's nothing so, in it. It's perfect. And I was glad they didn't put a word balloon at that last panel because you're right. That that last panel tells exactly what Metamorpho has gone through. Yeah. If that was the first thing, a lot of times you don't want to see the last page of a comic because you know, they'll have some big reveal for the next comic or whatever. But this one, if you picked it up and looked at that last panel, you would have to say, uh-oh, what's going on? You'd have to go back and read and find out why is he so small, so dejected, so alone, so sad. And the story lets you know with jokes. Right. And it still lets you know. And that's a hard thing to do. That is so hard to do. Comedy, whether it's over the top, broad or subtle, comedy is hard. And I really appreciate it when they try to pull it off and then and it works. And they didn't go over the top with it. It's really subtle. If you didn't know to look for them, some of these jokes would just pass you right by. Like the flip-flops, for example. Right. That would that, that would just pass most people right by. You said this issue has got a lot of comedy in it. And this is the one thing that I think that Giffen and Demetrius were masters of is you laugh 
the whole way through this issue, which makes the characters more real. So when you get mm-hmm. to that final panel in the sad moment, it means that much more to you. It's exactly. because you, you, you fall in love with them like they're family. And then, right. oh, then the sadness comes. All right. Uh, in the end, you get to the letters page. Just two things I want to mention from the letters page. They do acknowledge that they had been messing up Wally West's hair in the previous issues. They're like, yes, we know it's red. They said they've got that going forward. He won't be blonde anymore. And then there is a comment about Power Girl's costume being too revealing and sexy. And someone pointed out, and you said it earlier, that pretty much Captain Adam's naked. He's walking around in just boots and gloves for the most part. So <laughs> That's it. They, so yeah. it's not just Power Girl that's uh, scantily clad on the team as well. Mm-mm. All right. Mm-mm. Well, folks, we've been talking about Metamorpho and Simon Stagg and Java and Sapphire. And I think that is the perfect time to lead us into what I like to call... Character Spotlight. And this is where the guest is asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. Now, it's not really an origin recap, but more about where these characters were in the DC Universe before coming to the JLI, and what kind of impact maybe the JLI had on their career. And, uh, you know, anywhere from three to five minute conversation. So, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about Metamorpho? Metamorpho, metamorpho, bum, 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 bum. metamorpho, metamorpho. Well, uh, not really an origin, but you know, the, the interesting thing about Metamorpho is he had his own book for a while in the Silver Age, and we talked about that a little bit earlier and stuff. But the Justice League is what revived Metamorpho. It's what really brought him back. He was floundering, kind of. And I think they started really adding some good characters. And when they came up with the JLE, particularly, and, and International, where they could bring in all of the characters and sub-characters and other characters, this was a revival for guys like Metamorpho. And even Ralph Dibney's Elongated Man, for that matter. Uh, And Ralph is one of my favorite, I don't know what you call them, B characters, B-list characters. Uh, I love Elongated Man, and I've always loved Metamorpho as a comic book, as a funny, but not as a comic book, but as a funny book. Mm -hmm. I caught on to him being a funny, a humor story right away in his own book because it was all over the top. Everything about it was over the top. And uh, sometimes it was a little groaning involved, but uh, that's basically because of Sapphire. I think Sapphire is the groan, groaning character, but they're all three that way. But I think what happened was when the JL and in the particularly the late 80s, when we start getting into this area, they're trying to bring even their uh, funnier characters and give them, give them a little more depth, a little more character and bring them into the main Justice League character, make them, you know, he's just as viable as any of the other characters that DC has. And they tried for a while, even with Plastic Man and some of the others that were pure funny books. But Metamorpho has kind of stuck around. I really like that a lot. So as far as him and, and his own life outside when it was DC, I think he was floundering. I don't think they knew what to do with him until the Justice League International. And then once they broke the seal on that and said, we can have 
anybody, vigilante can be in this, you know, a cowboy. Why not? And so I think bringing back Metamorpho with his cast of characters and giving them a little more gravitas, even Simon Stagg, even in this issue, he's he's a funny looking guy, but he's talking seriously. He's a, he's almost acting like if you just picture him from this issue, you would think maybe he's an okay guy. Uh, no, he's not. <laughs> he's not an okay guy. Not even remotely. Not even close. This is not an okay guy. For me, Metamorpho has always been one of these sad sack kind of guys. You know, they kind of took it a little further. The Superman of the day triangle. Can't marry Lois. I want her to love me as Clark, not just Superman, blah, blah, blah. I'm so, you know, sad about that. Uh, Metamorpho, they took that to the nth level. That's why I compare him to kind of a Marvel character. He didn't want his powers. And he ends up with these incredible elemental powers, which is something else I've never quite understood. If you have a shape-shifting ability, he can almost look like anything he wants. But he chooses to stay in that look, that white, ball-headed, weird look. Good point. If he could transform into a car, you think he could transform into something that looks a little more human. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I always felt sorry for him when he was with Justice League stuff because everybody else would be like, I don't know, if they're going to a, a fancy ball or something, everybody's all dressed up, but he's the wheel or something. He's got to get under and be the axle or something to keep the car running or, you know, and people were just stepping over him. So I always felt sorry for him, kind of being the sad sack. But he's got these incredible powers. I always thought it was funny. I'm going to go over the five-minute limit. I always thought it was funny that even in the comic book or the cartoon show with Metamorpho, uh, if he's got these shape-shifting abilities and, and it can be any element that he knows and put them together and blah, 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 why did he always just make his right hand a big hammer? <laughs> either a Titanic hammer or a platinum hammer or a, you know, what about something else? I don't know. But they did that a lot. Kind of like Green Lantern always had a boxing glove come out. I was just thinking it's the same thing. It comes down to their creativity, I think. <laughs> I think so. But interesting character in that if, you know, if you like a character that you can kind of feel a little sorry for and root for, I think Metamorpho is a good one for that. And that weird family of his, well, not family, but you got Simon Stagg, the billionaire evil guy with the smoking hot daughter who's not quite all there. And the butler, who is another experiment that Stagg tried to advance his intellect, took, taking a Cro-Magnum and through science, turned him into a genius and didn't quite work like he planned. <laughs> and they never do. But as a character and as a little side group, I think Metamorpho's a really cool character. And I must say, I like what they've done with him here. Because uh, I didn't read the invasion stuff until, again, 30 years ago and after the fact. I had forgotten all of that. I had forgotten gotten that he was killed and lost his memory. So them bringing him here, and now we're just seeing him start to get those memories back. And it's like a, a daytime soap opera in that it's not just a little, oh yeah, I'm left-handed. It's like, oh yeah, I'm married with a kid. What? Okay. And she's now married again. Hmm. Interesting. So it's it's a daytime soap opera all at one time. And then yank it all away from him at the end. So, well, very sad. Soap opera's right. It will continue to play out over the coming months. I know that. Again, just based yeah. on looking back at the covers. So, I did want to mention two more things about Metamorpho. So, as the Justice League Europe keeps going, him and Elongated Man really become sort of the heart and soul of the team. When you think about mm. Justice League Europe, the place where your heart goes, the place where you feel the love coming from, really is Metamorpho and Elongated Man. So, I love that aspect oh, of Oh, good. Him. That's good to know. And then the song that you were singing so nicely for us a little while ago... Which 
which you guys are going <laughs> you guys will hear that parts of that song at some point in this episode whether we've already heard it or not I'm not sure because we haven't done the editing yet but uh, that song if I remember correctly went on the Justice League record specifically because they were trying to develop a Metamorpho animated series back then mm-hmm. which would have been fascinating if it had come out in the 60s that would have been really really yeah. interesting oh would have yeah. loved it I would have loved it too Metamorpho Metamorpho bum, 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 bum. oh that's long. it just it gets in your head and it can't come out and now we're at home and now lovely listeners it's in your head exactly <laughs> with that laughter folks I think that's the perfect moment where we go into the Wahaha <laughs> Award this is where we nominate the funniest moment of the issue. Both myself and Bob are going to pick a moment, and only one of them will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Bob, you're the guest. If you don't mind, would you tell us what moment did you find from the comic that was the singular funniest moment? Well, it's weird because it, it was probably not one of the big yuck yucks, but one of the littler ones. The whole metamorpho thing, while well, she's smooching up on him and all he wants to do is, Catherine, get this thing away from me. That whole scene made me laugh. But uh, the two things that, and I've narrowed it down to the two that I think were really funny. That do you I understand laughed. how the rules work? You're supposed to pick one, Bob. I know. I'll try. I'll get it down to the last. Because, <laughs> you know, but one of them is him loving the Three Stooges. That just okay. made me that just came out of left field and i have an affinity for that and he didn't want to be interrupted because he was listening to so that made me laugh out loud and java's first appearance where's my wife slamming the stuff and ralph said you mean mrs metamorpho for some reason i thought that was just really hysterical but i'm gonna go back to the three stooges yuck yuck for me that just was funny that was just funny all right and that's a good bit because that's continuing throughout a lot of issues where he has fallen in love with the Three Stooges in French, which just cracks me in up. French. My That's moment great. was later on uh, when Captain Adam is fly- he is flying back from New York and he arrives at the embassy to find Buddy Baker and an elongated man just hanging out outside, just <laughs> chilling out. Captain Adam shows up and he says, we're just sunning ourselves and shooting the breeze. So it seems perfectly natural. And it's like this, you have no reason to suspect anything different. And then Captain Adam's like, oh, well, that's not upsetting. Until I- Animal Man then says, well, we figured now would be a good time for seeing as how Metamorpho and his wife's husband are inside trashing the embassy and it just it takes you for a left turn and it's just it cracks me up and i just found that part completely hilarious so and i agree i think you're i think that's a good one i think you're right well i was gonna say we have to decide who's the winner here is it three stooges which has been a running gag for several issues so i'm willing to go that route or do we go for Mm -hmm. the bit of a left turn and an animal man takes the prize home so i don't know you're the guest i'm gonna let you make the call well i love the animal man bit that you brought up because it 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 does come out of left field and it is genuinely funny uh, because they're sunning themselves. They're just chilling, hanging out while there's a major fight going on inside. And I agree. I think that's the funny. I think you win. I think that's the funny one. All right. Well, and and the yuck yuck will be back. That's that'll, true. That's a that is true. Back. That is a reoccurring gag. So we, they will yes. have another opportunity. And in fact, Animal Man will be out of the book in a few months. So uh, this Ooh. is now he's won quite a few of these. Animal Man's had some pretty good bits in the last couple. Of Interesting. Months, and but yeah, I love that. I th- I think that's a uh, a major yuck. <laughs> Well, congratulations, Buddy Baker. Uh, You have won the Blahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you, sir. So now, Bob, I need to ask a favor. Now, Metamorpho and Java have completely trashed this Paris embassy, as you can see. Would would you mind hanging around here for a bit and sort of cleaning up a bit while I go cover listener feedback? Okay, where'd you hide the broom? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know, it, it'd be whoever was the guest last time, because it seems like I'm always asking the guests to clean up the embassies, because the Justice League members are always making a mess of it. So it's somewhere probably around the corner. Maybe Catherine can help you find it. So, Oh, well, Catherine. <laughs> now, don't All worry, right. Bob. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And folks, while Bob's taking care of that, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Law. Now, before we get into your feedback, just a little bit of news. Recently on the CW's TV show, The Flash, they revealed an evil parallel version of Cisco Ramon, and that character was called Echo. Now, in the DC Comics, you may recall that Echo was Vibe's brother, who was part of Booster Gold's conglomerate. So, really, a bit of a spinoff of the JLI. So, very cool. Our thanks to Michael Kramer for that heads up. Now, folks, as we get into your feedback, as I've been saying throughout the episode, get out on the social media. We want to hear your thoughts about this episode, about the issues themselves, about past episodes, really anything about the Justice League International. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast. And as I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments and you're outside of the United States, be sure to let me know. We will assign you the appropriate embassy, which is good to know, too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, a big shout out to Josh from here in the United States who left us an iTunes review. Thank you very much, Josh. He wrote, great stuff. I came into this podcast a few years in and I'm now catching up on old episodes. So good. Thank you very much, Josh. Welcome to the family. Now, folks, I would like to ask if you haven't left an iTunes review, please consider doing it. It's absolutely free. It only costs you a few minutes and it really helps raise the profile of the show and lets new people find it. And we're having new people find the show all the time through those iTunes reviews. So please consider it. And if you don't want to do a review, then maybe Java would like a word with you. Just saying. All right, and now your comments on the most recent episode where we talked about JLI Annual Number 3 with my guest Al Sedano. I pulled your comments from our website and emails and social media all over the place, and I'm just going to pull bits and pieces from there and try and touch on some of the stuff you guys talked about because there's so much feedback. And our first comment comes from Michael Kramer. He says, I never made much of the beach scene postcard with Booster and Beetle and Fire and Ice. And he's talking about the cover of JLI Annual Number 3. He goes, I never made much of that until I re-listened to the episodes regarding issues number 16 and 17. In those issues, we see fire draped over Beetle in a familiar way, as in flirtatious, in a number of different scenes. And lately, we've been seeing fire and Oberon heading towards each other. However, in this postcard of the four heroes, it seems to be a callback to the potential shipping of Beetle and fire. Hmm. Ice is next to Booster, but they don't really give off that same vibe. You know, Michael, you're not wrong about that. Back in the day, we did get a sense that maybe fire and Beetle would end up together, and this cover does sort of harken back to that. And it might be because it's by McGuire, and he drew those earlier issues with Fire and Beetle being sort of close. Also, for Halloween, Michael Kramer sketched out this cover design he posted over on Facebook, and it's of the Universal Monsters, and they were in sort of that classic Keb McGuire Justice League number one cover pose, where they're all standing there. It's, it was a lot of fun, and it was a very cool idea. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. Then we're from Damian Whiter from the English Embassy. Now, if you recall, Al and I had a large discussion about how we couldn't figure out who drew the cover to Justice League International number three. 
Oh, we got a little bit of egg on our face here. Damien chimes in with, that cover is signed by M slash JR. And so you should know, it's by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. Have I taught you nothing? Wow. Yeah, it was right there on the cover and we missed it. Also, uh, Damien pointed out there was an advertisement in Justice League America number 27 that featured a lot of the upcoming events and it even specifically says in there that the cover was done by Kevin McGuire. So yeah, we totally dropped the ball on that one. So thank you, Damien, for that. Now, also a big thank you to Randy Caldwell, who went above and beyond to investigate this for us. And he was at the Baltimore Comic Con while he was listening to the episode. So he just walked right up to Kevin McGuire and asked him if he drew it. How cool is that? And of course, Kevin said yes. So thank you, Randy. Really appreciate that. Then we heard from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy. He also has the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. And we were speculating about the cover on the original version of JLI Annual Number 3 and the digital version of JLI Annual Number 3. The typeset is different. Some of the different, there's even different words. Martin says, My theory as to why the cover details differ is suitably international. Back in the day, foreign comic companies reprinted DC Comics would be sent actual four-color acetate plates. When translation is involved, the lettering on the black plates wouldn't be needed. So it would be masked out and local translation would be used. It could be that after the plates were FedEx back to DC with the replacement lettering came with the cover, so someone had to get it re-lettered and got playful with the who's who description and had a brain fart regarding Bill Mester Loeb's. You know, that is very possible, Martin. That's an interesting thought. And it's the uh, really the only plausible theory I've heard so far. Then we heard from Symbol Pending, who runs the Power Girl blog. Now, last episode, we talked a little bit about faulty towers, and uh, Symbol Pending catches me on my uh, enunciation. I kept referring to John Cleese's character as Basil, when Symbol Pending points out, he says, I'm sure you're well aware, but I feel the need to point out that in the UK, it's Basil, not Basil. So, good catch. I totally screwed that up. Then we heard from my buddy Bradley Nolan. He goes, I love this issue and episode both. Well, thank you, Bradley. Appreciate that. Then we heard from Chris Franklin, who's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does a whole bunch of shows over here, including the JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, and more. Chris says, fun show, guys. If you ever need an art detective in the future, feel free to call me. A hobby of mine among some of my toy nerd friends is identifying artists on packaging licensing, and etc. So, not to toot my own horn, but I'm pretty good at spotting who drew what. Then he says, I won't pile on the, of course that's McGuire bandwagon. But yeah, of course that's McGuire. Yes, Chris, thank you. We got the memo. Uh, Chris goes on to say, the art does look a bit rough in this one, but by this point, annuals had lost kind of their must-buy luster from a few years prior to become ground for fill-in stories often drawn by untested artists. You know, that's a good point, Chris. And he references here, like the Teen Titans annual, how that was actually a big deal. Um, The legendary Superman number 11 and he says you know annuals used to be a big deal and by this point they they weren't so much and you're you're pretty right Chris goes on to say, I do have one question. Is the cop partner that Jean is trying to avenge meant to be the old friend he reunited with in that wonderful Secret Origin story from Secret Origins number 35 just a few months prior? I kind of hope not. You know, Chris, I think that is the story I was trying to remember last time. I kept saying that this story reminded me of another story uh, of Jean, and I think that maybe it was the Secret Origin story because he, he reconnected with a partner in that one. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Anyway, he goes on to say, Jean singing and praying at the end reminds me of the final scene in the Justice League animated episode, Comfort and joy, where Jean does the same, much to the wonderment of the Kent family, who he is spending the holidays with. Yeah, that's a fantastic moment. It does call back to that. And I, I watched that episode not too long ago. Really enjoy it. Then her from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, ah, the first appearance of Beef Eater. All hail the cometh of the great superhero that is Beef Eater. <laughs> 
LOL. Then Liz goes on to make some comments about, if you remember in the back of JLI Annual Number 3, there were some who's who pages, and one of the pages made a reference to one of the characters uh, that worked in the embassy was gay, but they were very subtle about it. So Liz has things to say about that. Liz says, the guy who was gay, but they don't beat you over the head with it. They just put it in his marital status. No bonk over the head like most stuff does nowadays. He's a character in his own right. Northstar, yeah, John Byrne hated how they did Northstar's coming out. It was a bit of a bonk on the head. Liz then says, a character needs to be a character, not a stereotype. Like Fire, she's Hispanic, but they don't beat you over the head with her race. She has a personality of her own, she has a sexuality that's her own, and she's a smart aleck, a bit of a glory hound, a best friend to Ice. Basically, her race is the least important part of her, as it should be. You know, that's a great observation, Liz. Thanks for pointing that out. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, my hetero life partner from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob's got shows such as the new upcoming Super Friends for All Mankind podcast. He does the MASHcast and so many more shows. Rob says, I bought this comic at the time, but I have no memory of that Batman Martian Manhunter story. Based upon your listening to the credits, I'm sure Tim Gula is a talented artist, but those pages, oof. Yeah, that was it was a bit rough, Rob. They went from Ward Hill Terry. Ward says, I bought this issue probably around the time it came out, or not too long afterwards. I don't know why, as I had stopped buying comics regularly by then. But I remember the kuhui, kuhui, kuhui bit. It's hilarious. But the pictures you posted don't match my memory. And like Rob, I don't recall the second story at all. Never mind my mind. The real question is, where does this fit in? Last I knew, Blue Beetle was incapacitated. Does it happen beforehand? How did they get all those embassies and teleporters built so quickly? Come on, Shaq. Make with the explanation. Well, Terry, I didn't even have to because our hero, Tim Price, swept in. He says this story was after the Justice League Europe Queen Bee story because Rising Sun made an appearance, meaning Rising Sun was defeated in the JLE comic during the Queen Bee story. And then in the annual, we saw Rising Sun, who was comatose in the Japanese embassies. So there's your answer. Then Tim goes on to say the embassies themselves, some have existed since JLI number eight, moving day, and the rest were being built in the meantime, but not featured in any of the stories yet. And he says, I could have sworn the Tokyo embassy appeared before this annual and is driving me nuts. By the way, the answer to that one, Tim, is I'm pretty sure the Japanese embassy was featured in one of the earlier JLI annuals because Dr. Light came. That episode where uh, everyone got taken over by a crazy virus. I think it was JLI annual number one, I think. Anyway, it's off the top of my head. But then Tim goes on to say, but I smelled a missed opportunity for the who's who pages in this issue, listing the first appearance of said embassies in addition to the staffers. Yeah, that's a good point. That would have been helpful. Then we heard from our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. He says, Irish Embassy calling and a very tired embassy at that. We have just got everything in order for the big JLI visit. Both teams coming to our humble embassy. The embassy looks in top condition. All the refreshments have been ordered. And after visiting with Michael Morris in the UK Embassy, they'll be looking forward to a great welcome. Just after they finish visiting the Paris Embassy. Oh, wait. There's the monitor board. And then Jimmy apparently gets a call here. Hello? Oh, hi, Max. Great to hear from you. Ready to transport over? Oh, you can't come? You just received word that a new nation wants to put you up as a base? What country is that? Kahui, Kahui, Kahui? Seriously? Where is that? An island in the South Pacific and Beetle and Flash want to hit it before the sunset? Oh, no, I totally understand. Maybe you can visit another time? Okay, Max. Thanks. Bye. Then we hear the sound of the monitor board intercom being violently smashed. Kahui, kahui, kahui. What the? And there's a whole bunch of expletive symbols there. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always love your comedy bits in the feedback. Uh, Jimmy goes on to say the Martian Manhunter story was a nice aftermath story to Sean's own miniseries and the secret origin story. The art was, in comparison to McGuire, Templeton, and Sears, and even McCone, not to my liking. I wonder, though, was it trying to match the art style in the previous storylines? And he's talking about the Martian Manhunter miniseries was done by Mark Badger, and then the secret origin story, I uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the artist, but it was a very sort of stylistic approach. Yeah, I think you're probably right. They were probably trying to find a very stylistic look for anything with Martian Manhunter. 
Then Jimmy answers a question of mine from last episode. He goes, from my comment in the last episode, Black Hand, he had said Black Hand to be back. And I'm like, when's that? He says, Black Hand will be coming back in issue number 51 in Aliens Night Out. A fun issue. Awesome, man. I look forward to that. Then Jimmy says he's been reading the Captain Adam series in the 1980s. And in issue number 38, Captain Adam confessed to the Justice League Europe about him relaying reports back to the Pentagon. And the reaction of the Justice League Europe was like, meh. Even Dimitri commented, hokey smokes, Captain. I thought everyone knew you were an American spy as my predecessor was a Soviet spy. How else do you get into the League to start with in the first place? Then Jimmy goes on to say, really enjoyed those Captain Adam issues. Uh, issues from the 30s to the 40s have a lot of Justice League Europe with one very good team-up story with Dimitri and a lot more on the romance with Catherine Colbert. Huh. Very cool. I may have to go back and finish up my reading of the Captain Adam series because I have not read those issues. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Then Captain Entropy chimes in. He goes, this Captain Adam traitor storyline has gone from nonsensical to truly grating. He isn't a traitor at all. He had a prior loyalty that everyone already knew when they hired him. He is a hero who is publicly known to be a U.S. military officer. He's sponsored and endorsed by the U.S. government and is essentially publicly sent by the government to join the JLI. So of course he's reporting, and so is Dimitri, and so is Fire for that matter. And Max would have brought those people in because they would observe and report what was going on to those governments so they knew, relax, we're not really a threat. The implication that, as goofy as they were, the relative intelligence and sophisticated members of the Justice Leagues, like they would expect something different, especially from Max, it insults their intelligence to even suggest that. (laughs) Very good point, Captain Entropy. Yeah, absolutely. Should have seen that coming a mile away. Then he goes on to say, uh, you are now way beyond the point that where I was consistently catching Justice League America and Justice League Europe. I think that's just due to everything else going on in my life in the late 80s and 90s. The Fire and Water Network has introduced me to a lot of tales from that era that I didn't know I missed and can go back and enjoy now. Awesome. Glad to be of assistance, Captain Entropy. Then we heard a little more from our good buddy Tim Price. He goes, Mike McCone's art was pretty rough in this one. Maybe he was rushed with the length of the story, or the inking got in the way. But this wasn't really as good as his work on Justice League America number 25 or 28, or even Mr. Miracle number 6. But those were all likely stockpiled issues without a tight deadline. Well, we can still see his style developing, which is cool in an artist's early days. He's just got a little ways to go. Then Tim goes on to say, now don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed the world tour story, but I wish all of the characters had been given more chance to shine. It was really a Beetle, Booster, and John story, with the rest of the cast tagging along, saying very little except for the occasional gag line. And it missed the chance to have different characters from the two teams interact a lot. Yeah, you're not wrong there, Tim. Now that I look back, I can see that. Yeah, the teams didn't interact as much as I would have liked. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from our Brazilian embassy. And he says, as a Brazilian, I found the pool joke one of the best jokes made with Brazil in comics. No soccer, no over-sexualized women or confusion with Mexico. You guys do that a lot. Just corruption, which is a little bit of a problem we have here, but still it's a pretty funny joke. As always, reading the issue in Brazilian Portuguese makes it ten times funnier. Ah, thank you ever, Tom. Then we heard from JT the Exterminator. He gave us an advanced comment on this episode, talking about Justice League America number 29. He says one of the single best covers of the series hands down. Awesome. Thank you, JT. Now, this is the part of the show where we thank everybody who shared the show on their social media timeline, meaning Facebook and Twitter. This time out, we're looking at nearly 70 names of folks who helped promote the last episode. I know it's a long list of names, folks, and you could be added to this list as well. All you got to do is go out to Twitter and hit retweet or go out to Facebook and hit share on the posts about this episode, and we'll be sure to mention you in the next episode because, really, these people are out there beating the streets trying to raise awareness of this show and bring in more JLI fans so we continue to grow this fantastic community. So, my thanks to Aaron Head Moss, Andy Capellish, Between the Pages, Blue and Gold Facebook Group, Callum Nauer, Canadian Geek, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, 
Damian Weider, David Capoon, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Ed Moore, Green Lantern HG, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jason Pope, Jeff Messer, Jeff Polier, Jeffrey Brown, Justin Steiner, Keechi Baker, Connell, Liz Ann Oswalt, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Mark Adams, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthew Thomas Cody, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man account, Michael Bailey, Michael Kramer, Mike Dinas, Nicholas Allheim, Pablo Lamoth, Paul Kean, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Al Sedano and his Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast account, Richard Field, Rob Kelly and his accounts from Rob Kelly Creative, Super Friends for All Mankind podcast, Superman Movie Minute, The Aquaman Shrine, MASHcast, and Mountain Comics. Roger Preeb, Diablo Frank and the Rolled Spine Podcasts, Ryan Daly, Scott Ricketts, Sean Ross, Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Seinfeld Podcast, Sentinel of Liberty Podcast, Siskoid, Tim Price, Trent Lewis, and Willie Yarbrough. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, guys, and the community of JLI fans we're building together are absolutely amazing. I love all of you, even you, Ryan Daly. But you're not on this episode, so you're probably not listening, so it doesn't really matter. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably Al Sedano's fault. So if I did, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. Over on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast, or you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Al Sedano for helping me cover JLI Annual Number 3. And thanks to you listeners for such a fantastic collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Boss and Bob together in the same embassy. My name is Bob Fisher, and I'm the host of the Superman Forever radio podcast. On the Superman Forever radio podcast, I talk about Superman from 1938 to present day. And in 2018, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the Man of Steel's first appearance in Action Comics with a full year of new episodes, more episodes, plus new features like The Adventures of Superman When He Was a Boy. Superboy is coming to the Superman Forever radio podcast. Also, the Superman Forever Roundtable Discussion Group, where I gather together some of the best Superman podcasters around, and we talk Superman. So if you want to know why I've been a Superman fan for over 60 years, point your favorite podcatcher to the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. Hey everybody, Clinton Robinson here. I recently attempted to sneak into the Longbox Crusade headquarters basement to watch some of the Albrecht Brothers action movies while the crew was out at the Saturday matinee theater. Too bad I had a little mishap and got stuck down here with no movies to boot. 
However, there are pieces of Pat's old podcasting equipment and excellent Wi-Fi service, so I decided to pass the time watching online fan films and talking about them. What, you don't know what a fan film is? Well, there are these non-theatrical movies that people post online of already established characters and settings. Hey, hey, hey now. Just wait and see. Save all judgment for what happens when you listen to Fan Film Fridays, a new podcast found on the Longbox Crusade podcast feed. Okay, folks, we are back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Boss and Bob together. Thank goodness. And, uh, Boss, I was worried we weren't going to get you back from uh, the embassy after uh, leaving you there with all the ladies, but I'm glad you showed up. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem. Glad to be back. And thank you for appearing on this episode of the show. I was so excited to have a chance to finally podcast with you just one-on-one. We did that big Marvel vs. DC uh, movie show, but we had to deal with Nathaniel, Michael Bailey, and Chris Franklin. So, blah. so this yeah. is more fun with us just one-on-one. Boss, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs well you can find me in the new zero hour strikes the new podcast from me and siscoid we're covering every issue every tie-in everything from zero hour we're uh, doing that right now and if you want to hear some uh, not really older stuff but the other podcast our finished project you can always listen to first strike the invasion podcast where we cover the invasion crossover from end to end with everything just everything invasion so check it out such great shows boss i cannot tell you how much i enjoy those shows a complete joy ear to ear smiles listening to those things as other people have said you guys are doing the lord's work with those shows so thank you so much for doing them <laughs> well hey it's my pleasure it's really fun to do and siscoid's awesome so and eh, well you're right about some of that there anyway <laughs> Now, Bob, I really appreciate you appearing on the show. Now, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs, Bob? Uh, pretty easy. Supermanforever.com is the website. I host a little podcast called the Superman Forever Radio Podcast. Superman Forever Radio Podcast. So you go to there or supermanforever.com. And, of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter or any of the other social places. I'm only on Facebook. And you can find me there as Bob Fisher or... Uh, I also have a Superman Forever page there. And that's pretty easy. That's where you get to me. Well, Bob, this has been an absolute blast. I mean, this has been years in the making, <laughs> us finally getting together and chatting. <laughs> yes, I certainly hope yes. Michael Bailey is jealous that we found each other now and we no longer, neither one of us have a need for him anymore. Uh, really? Because we found really. each other. Uh, this is wonderful. I have been looking forward to this and I am just thrilled to be part of this. And it got me to step out of my little comfort zone for a, a while. You know, usually I'm asked to do a Superman thing, which I love doing. I absolutely will talk to anybody at any time about Superman. But uh, when you invited me on to do the JLE, I thought, well, that'll be fun since I haven't read any of those in 35 years. <laughs> about the closest you got to an S-Shield was Power Girl's butt on this comic book, on the <laughs> yes. cover of this comic book. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it. He wasn't even mentioned in the issue. None of the top ones were mentioned, unless you consider Martian Manhunter one of the top seven. And please note, we got all the way to the end of the podcast with Bob, and not once until this moment was George Reeves mentioned, I think. 
All right. We did. We made it. I did not bring him up at all. There we go. So there you have it. That's going to do it, folks. Now come back next month when we cover Justice League America, number 30, and Justice League Europe, number 6. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. I'm Bess. And I'm Bob. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? Be more careful what we do around here. <laughs>